Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming uh, and joining us today. Uh, I'm Michael Green. I'm the Vice President uh, here at CSIS for Asia and also direct Asian Studies at Georgetown. I think some of my students are watching us online. Welcome to everyone who will be uh, watching our discussion online. Um, we are um, always concerned and focused on safety at CSIS, so it's my responsibility to uh, let you know I'm your safety officer. Uh, if that fact in itself worries you, you're free to go now. Um, and uh, should we need to leave the building, it's pretty obvious where we're going to go out the front and the rally point is around the corner um, at the um, National Geographic building. Um, so we're delighted today to cooperate uh, once again with our colleagues and friends at the Japan Institute for International Affairs. Um, we'll be looking at um, China's military uh, and diplomatic uh, and overall maritime strategy <clears throat> towards the first island chain. Uh, and beyond to the second island chain and the implications for regional security cooperation. We'll have uh, panels first on um, three subregions. We'll start north and work our way down the island chain. <clears throat> the first panel, which uh, my colleague Bonnie Glazer will moderate shortly, will look at the East China Sea. Um, and then the second uh, panel, uh, which I'll moderate, will look at the South China Sea. Finally, we'll end up in the Pacific Islands. And then we'll ask um, some of our colleagues from the US and Japan in a final session to reflect on what they've heard and to um, think about, uh, posit some ideas for how uh, not only the US and Japan, but Australia, uh, Korea, Singapore, other like-minded states can cooperate um, to try to um, maintain freedom of navigation, freedom from coercion, <coughs> uh, peace and stability in the Western Pacific. Um, throughout the discussions, we'll take a look at um, the uh, sources of Chinese behavior, the motivations we think we see for Beijing. I think you'll find they're a little bit different uh, as you go down the island chain. Um, some of it will be um, uh, important and legitimate economic uh, activities, uh, development assistance. <clears throat> some of it will relate to high-end war fighting and denying the United States access. Uh, complicating the American ability to intervene in the event of contingencies that involve Taiwan or Japan or our uh, allies in the, in the South uh, East Asia region. <clears throat> um, part of it, uh, I think you'll hear particularly in uh, North uh, East Asia and the East China Sea and, and in the South China Sea, is about uh, what we at CSIS, among others, have studied, uh, what's called gray zone coercion, finding ways to pull the seams in U.S. alliances um, between, for example, the Japanese Coast Guard and the Japanese Navy, Maritime Self-Defense Forces, weakening the structure of U.S. alliances, security commitments that have um, kept the peace but have also been an obstacle uh, to uh, China asserting its own claims and interests. And of course, part of it is about China's territorial claims. So it's a complicated, multi-layered set of issues, and it varies. Um, quite a bit from these regions we're going to look at going north to south and the um, the kind of tools we will need uh, with uh, friends, partners and allies will range from diplomacy to international law to uh, military cooperation, diplomatic alignment, um, strengthening jointness and interoperability but also, and we, the panelists met this morning, also on that spectrum is finding ways to talk to Beijing about it, seek uh, seeking tools for confidence building uh, in ways that don't legitimize gray zone coercion. So it's, it's pretty complicated, but we couldn't have a better partner and a better group of speakers to help us make sense of it. Uh, beginning with um, 
uh, uh, Mr. Nakayama Yasunori, uh, family name Nakayama, I did it Japanese style, family name first, who's the acting director of Kokusai Mondai Kinkyujo, the Japan Institute for International Affairs, and he's going to start us off uh, and introduce this moderator for the first panel, Nakayama-san. Um, Dr. Green, thank you very much for your kind uh, introduction. I am Nakayama Yasunori, the Director General of the Japan Institute of International Affairs. I'd like to um, thank, uh, thank you all, uh, including the online audience, for joining us for uh, this event. Today, we will examine maritime security and challenges we face and how we can enhance stability in the region. It is fortunate uh, that we are joined by the experts on East China Sea, South China Sea, and Pacific Islands, including the scholars who have traveled from uh, each region for this event. And we also have uh, uh, invited specialists in international law, uh, Professor Kanehara, um, so we can look at the uh, situation from legal perspective as well. Please allow me to very briefly introduce our organization, the Japan Institute of International Affairs, founded in 1959, uh, 60 years ago, is a private non-partisan policy think tank in Tokyo focused on foreign affairs and security issues. Going back to the topic today, we are facing serious challenges against the rules-based international order. In many places in the world, attempts are being made to change the status quo by force. The East and the South China Seas, as well as the Pacific Islands, are no exception. For example, in the East China Sea, intrusions by the Chinese government vessels into the Japanese water has never ceased and even intensified, despite the Japan-China relation is said to be warming. In the South China Sea, China has been continuing militarization and reclaimed the shoals and inlets, even after the International Tribunal issued its, uh, uh, even after the International Tribunal issued its ruling against China's claim. And some studies uh, point out that uh, Chinese government vessels are harassing oil and gas operation of the coastal states of the area. In the Pacific Islands region too, China has been expanding its influence through coercive diplomatic offensives and lopsided business deals. With such a situation in mind, we have organized today's events on maritime security challenges in the Indo-Pacific region. At this event, I hope we will be able to compare the situations in the East China Sea, South China Sea, and the Pacific Islands from both the viewpoint of security and international law. By bringing our experts together today, I hope we'll be able to figure out uh, the best way to jointly maintain the rule-based uh, rule order within Asia and beyond. Thank you very much. And I would like to call uh, Bonnie Grazer of CSIS to moderate the first session. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Bonnie Glazer. I direct the Ch China Power Project at CSIS. 
thank you to um, Nakayama-san, uh, my colleague Mike Green, uh, for organizing this really terrific uh, conference. Our panels are short. Uh, we only have 45 minutes, so we are going to dive right in, and I'm going to very briefly introduce our speakers. To my left is Masashi Murano, who is a Japan Chair Fellow at the Hudson Institute. He researches U.S.-Japan defense cooperation, was previously at the Okazaki Institute in uh, Tokyo. And then to his left is uh, Jeffrey Hornung, who's a political scientist at the RAND Corporation specializing in Japanese uh, security and foreign policies and uh, defense policies more broadly in the uh, Asia-Pacific region. So with that, we're gonna start our discussion about what is taking place in the East China Sea. And I'm going to start by asking uh, Murana-san to talk a little bit about how Japan sees Chinese activities, operations changing in the region around the Senkakus and then more broadly within the East China Sea and the first island chain, in the air, at the sea. What are the low intensity, high intensity um, operations that you see China engaging that Japan is most worried about? Uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction, and uh, uh, thank you very much for inv uh, inviting me, he me here. The, uh, before that, starting to this, my, my uh, address to the, to the threat assessment in the East China Sea, the, maybe that as some, as some of you may know, that current Japan and China relationship is improving. Uh, for example, the President Xi Jinping is scheduled to visit Japan as a state guest in the next year. However, they're looking at the East China Seas, the activities of the Chinese Coast Guard and PLA navies and PLA Air Force has becoming increasingly active rather than restrained. So in other words, even if Japan and China diplomatic relations improves, but China's behavior in the East China Sea is irrelevant. Uh, so the, what kind of the activities is China especially uh, doing in East China Sea? I would like to, uh, at first, I would like to talk about the activities of the low intensity alarms, which means not uh, regularly armed forces. Of course, the focus on the, the Chinese Coast Guard and Chinese government uh, police vessels, maritime police vessels. The, the activities of the Chinese government vessels in the East China Sea, especially around the Senkaku Islands, they have become more active and regular since Japan uh, decided decision to uh, nationalize to the Senkaku Island in 2012. Uh, the Chinese Coast Guard vessels navigate the contiguous zone almost every day when the weather is fine and uh, they enter into Japanese territorial waters the three times a month on an average. Uh, in security and intelligence community in Tokyo have informally called these activities 3-3-2 uh, method. This means that three Coast Guard vessels that has entered into the Japanese territorial water around Senkaku Islands in the three times of each month are remaining in the water for the two hours. But from the September 2016, that this method was upgraded to 3-4-2 method. In other words, the Chinese Coast Guard increased, increased the number of the vessels from 3 to 4. So why the Chinese Coast Guard has been able to increase the number of the vessels in the operation on the one time 
<coughs> this is because that they are rapidly building the coast guard ships. For example, in 2012, the Chinese coast guard has just 40 vessels weighing more than 1,000 tons. But at now, what now means that in 2012, that this number is increasing to the 135. The, at the present, average the waste of the Coast Guard vessels op operating in the East China Sea uh, in uh, 3,000 tons, while that Japan's Coast Guard vessels in 1,500 1, tons. And in this way, it is obvious that Japan's Coast Guard is inferior to the, the Chinese Coast Guard in both quality and quantity in the East China Sea. In addition to the hardware, the, there are also important point is the software, which means that, that command and control. Uh, in July 2018, the Chinese Coast Guard was placed under the command of the Chinese People Armed, Force, Armed Police Forces under the Central Military Commissions. The armed police are paramilitary groups and are expected to be more closely coordinated to be the PLA than before. So Japan has long sought to make the defense posture as seamless, but it cannot be overlooked that China is making progress in making its defense posture seamless and integrated. Now, the next is that I'm looking, uh, let's move on to upgrading the PLA forces and its characteristic. Uh, first, the intelligence gathering vessels and aircraft are operating in the area closer to the Senkaku Islands. And second, as the Pentagon annual reports pointed out that the overwater presence of the PLA Air Force bombers is increasing. Uh, in particular, they are increasingly conducting joint exercise with PLA Navy vessels, uh, including aircraft carriers. And most of these joint exercises go around Taiwan uh, via Miyako Strait or Basi Channel. And third, that PLA operational area extended for far beyond from East China Sea. Uh, this includes not only the Kyushu, Shikoku, and Honshu in Japan. Uh, the concern is that most bombers, like uh, H-6Ks and Chinese surface ships and submarines bound in the, for the uh, Sea of Japan and the Pacific, islands, Pacific side can carry the long-range cruise missiles. So these activities are conducting in peacetime are not necessarily in the wartime, but we need to be aware that not only ballistic missile attack from the mainland China, but also a saturation attack of the cruise missile by the mobile platforms of land, sea, and air are becoming more emerging threat for Japan and U.S. forward presence. So, so in that that is one of the major perspectives from the low intensity and the high intensity line. Thank you, Murano-san. Very comprehensive. We're now going to turn to Jeff, and I'm going to ask you to talk about how Japan is responding uh, to these threats. And in doing so, maybe you can critique a little bit where Japan's response is effective or where the gaps are in some of the capabilities um, that they still need to fill. Uh, so you can maybe start by addressing those. Thank you, Bonnie. 
Uh, thank you, CSIS and JIIA, for the opportunity to speak today. Um, so in thinking about Japan's response to Chinese activity in the East China Sea, I think we've all, we're all familiar with uh, Japan's uh, strengthening of the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, as well as strengthening strategic partnerships in the region, uh, for instance, with Australia and others. I won't go into those. I think um, pertaining to uh, what uh, Murano-san said uh, regarding Chinese activity, I think we can break up Japan's response into two main categories looking first at what the self-defense forces, uh, sort of additions to capabilities of the self-defense forces, as well as looking at uh, some things that have been done for the Japan Coast Guard. So looking first at the self-defense forces, over the last number of years, uh, Japan has been refocusing its efforts from the north, from the traditional Soviet uh, Russian threat back down to uh, the southwestern, the Nansei Shoto, the southwestern islands. And in doing that, we also see that it's building out uh, a posture on four islands, um, Amamioshima, Miyako, Ishigaki, Yonaguni. These are these, uh, they're called coastal observation units, but they're these small units where you have self-defense forces stationed, um, you have uh, radars, and in the future you see some building out of some important uh, capabilities, uh, whether they be SSMs or, or SAMs, on these islands, which will play an important role in terms of trying to keep China within the first island chain. Uh, you also see developing over the last really decade uh, the development of the Amphibious Rapid Deployment Brigade, which is amphibious capability within the ground self-defense forces. Uh, it's meant to be uh, designed for retaking islands, uh, and it's stationed in, uh, its headquarters is in western Kyushu, close to Sasebo. Uh, we also see over the last couple years uh, in, to respond especially to some of the uh, PLA Air Force uh, incursions around the Senkaku Islands and, and in the East China Sea generally, uh, the Air Self-Defense Force increased the number of squadrons that are in Naha uh, to the point that they actually created a new air wing, the first since the 1960s, uh, specifically uh, because of the increase in the number of Chinese uh, assets in the region. And then, of course, for those of you who have followed uh, the last uh, new defense program guidelines that came out la late last year, a lot of things that uh, made the news, things like the refurbishing of the Izumo uh, helicopter destroyer into a multi-purpose destroyer, uh, many people though are just calling an aircraft carrier, um, as well as uh, the procurement of uh, F-35B variants, which uh, are the short takeoff uh, vertical landing. And importantly, we also see a, a push into multi-domains, uh, and so you see space uh, cyber and electromagnetic domain be, uh, spectrum being uh, an important focus now of the self-defense forces. All of these uh, moves in the self-defense forces are important from the standpoint of defense of Japan, uh, but they can also play an important role in a regional contingency. Um, from the standpoint of the Japan Coast Guard, we have to think of the Coast Guard here as the contact layer of the day-to-day -day, uh, interaction with the Chinese. Uh, and here, there have been some notable developments. They don't make a lot of press, uh, in, in, uh, at least in the United States. But um, a number of things, uh, the biggest one was um, about a year or two ago, 
uh, Japan stood up uh, a Senkaku Territorial Waters Guard Unit on Ishigaki Island. This is a 12-ship uh, unit that is solely focused on the Senkaku Islands. And it's also supported by uh, an upgraded Miyako Coast Guard office that has more staff, more uh, bigger ships. And even though the Miyako Coast Guard office is, uh, its area of responsibility is wider East China Sea, illegal fishing and whatnot, it also is, uh, has capabilities that can assist uh, the Ishigaki unit. You see a video transmission system that was installed on the ships that now directly are transmitting to the Kante so that it uh, helps with rapid decision making uh, and so that the prime minister has visibility and awareness of what's happening on the water. Uh, you also see an increase in the number of resources leading to more personnel in the 11th Regional Coast Guard headquarters, which is in, responsible for the region. And so you see a number of uh, larger patrol vessels uh, that are capable of operating by the Senkaku Islands. And you also see a bolstering of some of the aerial capabilities for the Coast Guard that include more helicopter and private satellites so that the Coast Guard headquarters in Tokyo can get uh, direct uh, feed of what's happening in the region. And so together you see, so you see both the the Coast Guard and the Self-Defense Forces, you see this dedication here to try to at least block or at least manage the situation of what's happening in East China Sea. But of course, there are some questionable gaps. Um, Bonnie, you asked about gaps. Um, you know, one of the biggest one that always comes up is the communication between the Japan Coast Guard and the Maritime Self-Defense Forces. Uh, without going into a lot of details, the Coast Guard in Japan is very much a uh, constable, constable force, um, and it has very strict rules about engagement. And so if uh, China, for instance, is looking for a potential seam that it can try to, a wedge to try to uh, cause confusion in Japan, uh, you will need seamless uh, cooperation and operational cooperation between the Coast Guard and the Maritime Self-Defense Forces but if force is being used, then we have some problems uh, in terms of just operating together. Um, and also the, the Coast Guard itself is not equipped with armor nor weapons uh, for any sort of uh, contingency. Um, there's also the question, uh, I mentioned the amphibious rapid deployment brigade. There's a healthy debate in Japan about how, how effective it would actually be in a high-end contingency. Uh, it's about 3,000 people, um, and it has the capabilities, or it will have the capabilities to actually move uh, to the region, but it, rely, it will have to rely heavily on the Maritime Self-Defense Force and the Air Self-Defense Force for protection, close air support, and just escorting it to the region. And the Self-Defense Forces are not known for their jointness. And so there's questions about how effective the Amphibious Rapid Deployment Brigade would be in that situation. Um, and then I guess just overall, um, there, there are questions about the Coast Guard capabilities, even though you see this increase in resources and personnel. Personnel is not really an issue. But if you look at the number of ships that are capable of long-term operations far from shore in the Japan Coast Guard, uh, my calculation, Rand did a report uh, a while back on this, but we, we calculated that there's 62 ships that are capable of long-term operations far from Japanese uh, shores uh, in the Coast Guard, just in the Coast Guard, not the Self-Defense Forces. 
And so uh, with uh, the amount of ships that the, the Chinese Coast Guard is increasing and they're much larger and much more capable in terms of weapon, um, there's a question of whether the 62 ships is really, that's not really in a position to shape Chinese actions if China decides to throw everything at the Japanese. So I'll, I'll stop there. So Marana-san, um, you talked about the 332 or the 342, uh, the numbers of ships and how long they are staying inside uh, the territorial sea. In September of uh, 2012, uh, which of course is when the Japanese government purchased three of the Senkaku Islands, and that's really when we saw the Chinese start regularly operating both in the contiguous zone and um, inside uh, the territorial sea. And at that time, I think the Chinese hoped to persuade the Japanese government to accept uh, that there is a territorial dispute between the two countries, which of course Tokyo did not. I wonder if you can um, uh, explain from your perspective what China's objectives have been since then. What are the Chinese trying to achieve and are they successful? Are they making any headway? Have their objectives changed or are they just very consistent? Well, so my answer is they're clear, and, but, uh, but it's complicated. This is because in my understanding, the long-term Chinese uh, objective is uh, creating a changing the status quo and uh, taking the fight accompli uh, in nearby the, the uh, two regularly their activities nearby the uh, Senkaku including, and, and uh, in the East China Sea. In that, so I'd like, in that context, I'd like to add in some uh, another challenges, uh, as the Dr. Honan already pointed out. That in the, my the initial remarks, I uh, pointed out the the low intensity challenges and the high intensity challenges. It's it could I think that it could be the paraphrasing that that the combination of the gray zone challenges and a to A challenges. How do we deal with the problem? Is the how do we deal with the those combinations, which means that when we face to the those kind of challenges, uh, we have to consider to the how do we balance between the uh, presence patrol in the uh, peacetime and the vulnerability, reducing the vulnerabilities of the in, in the wartime, uh, which means that. Uh, in the issue of the gray zone, have already recognized in the, the Japan's security communities uh, until uh, 2010, which means that 2010 version of the National Defense Program guideline has already described as the importance of the dynamic deterrence concept as uh, the one of the solution for gray zone challenges. The, I think that it is my understanding uh, for this concept that it is to increasing the number of the, the ISL activities or the presence patrol by Japan's Coast Guard and the self-defense forces in the same area which is gray zone challenges is concerned. And uh, we tried to prevent from the, to making the uh, open the physical windows of opportunities. Now, I think that 2018 version, latest version of the National Defense Program guideline, that basically followed that directions. But problem is that the, our resources is not unlimited. 
So we need to prioritize the, our defense investment for the, the effect, more, most effective the meanings. So in that context, that some challenges, which I already mentioned, the combination, how do we deal with the combination of the uh, gray zone challenges and the A380 challenges? The, so why I concern that, especially in these areas, that important for the Japan's uh, Coast Guard vessels and the self-defense forces to continue uh, their activities in order to prevent from the attempting fatal accompli or probing, engaging is probing activities by the Chinese side. That, so as uh, Dr. Hollands already mentioned, the refurbishment of the Ismo-class helicopter carriers and the combination of the F-35, potential combinations or the F-35B, uh, which are decided to the, the latest national defense program guideline, I think that those kind of efforts will enhance the cap capabilities, our cap capabilities for the presence patrols in the peacetime and the during the gray zone situations. The, however, the, given the China's anti-access area denial capabilities, that it is extremely risky to deploy these high-value platforms for forward uh, under the high, uh, some contingencies happen at once. In particular, the Beijing has some incentive uh, to decide to use anti-SIP crews and ballistic missiles carried by the variety of the platform, the early in the confrontation to counter perceive our advantages. So in that reason, the, for instance, the stealth assets like F-35 are hard to detect and intercept in the air. So therefore, the de detection and the neutralization has much higher probability of success while these assets are on the ground or on SIPs. So the balancing between the, the forward presence in the peacetime and the, the, uh, reducing the, our vulnerability so through the, some dispersal measures in the, uh, the wartime this is a very competing demand. So that is, that it is uh, extremely difficult to balance of them. So that is one of the, my the current major concern about dealing with the, these combination issues. Jeff, can you talk a little bit more about uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance, what we are doing to bolster deterrence um, more generally in the East China Sea, um, and maybe uh, offer some recommendations about some other things that could be done that we're not doing? Well, so one of the big things now, in the last couple years, I would say that the heavy lifting on bolstering the U.S.-Japan alliance really came around 2015. You see, um, at that point, the Abe administration passed a suite of security laws that made it possible to do uh, more uh, in, in different situations, I should say, the, the exercise of collective self-defense. Um, and at the same time, you see the U.S. and Japan following from that, they uh, redefine uh, their, their defense guidelines. And the defense guidelines uh, shows you essentially that there lays out the roles and missions from peacetime all the way up to high-end contingency. And so you have this redefinition of what Japan can do, or I should, maybe not redefinition, a tweaking of what Japan can do. You have a updating of the roles and missions of Japan uh, U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, you see a continued um, focus of uh, 
you have, uh, whereas uh, U.S. rock uh, exercises, for instance, over the last couple years have reduced, uh, the J U.S. Japan uh, exercises have not. They've become more, uh, I would say, in some ways robust in terms of partners. You see, for instance, U.S., uh, Japan, France, and U.K. Uh, engaging in some exercises off Guam. Uh, you see Japan really getting more networked alliances, network partnerships, uh, not just with, uh, in the region, these trilats with U.S. and Australia, uh, but you also see Japan reaching out more with U.K., with France. And so it's doing a lot more with its strategic partnerships, but it's also always keeping the U.S. alliance as the central core uh, around which it, it does a lot of these things. And so you do see this bolstering um, of what the U.S.-Japan alliance can do. Now, in terms of what needs to be done, CSIS, Mike and, and other, Mike uh, put out a report a couple years ago on, on recommendations, and one of the big things that a lot of people have been arguing for a while, including Mike did it in the report, was uh, the need for an operational command. Um, and the fact that right now, for instance, in Japan, the, uh, the, the, the joint staff um, the chief of the joint staff. Uh, essentially, it's a Paul Mill advisor to the prime minister, but in an operation also has to run the show. And this is an incredible amount of responsibilities for one person in a time that you are thinking of a contested environment, lots of uncertainty. And so being able to have an operational command dedicated just for something um, like a for instance, a Nansei Shoto operational command or something, um, that would take a little pressure off and, and help clarify maybe some of the command and control relationships within Japan. But um, right now, it seems that the, there hasn't been, with the exception of the establishment of a ground con, uh, component command for the ground self-defense forces, there hasn't been any significant tweaking of the C2 arrangements in Japan. Instead, what you see uh, is a lot of focus on hardware and a lot of focus on capabilities. Um, the big question for a lot of people who focus on Japan is how the forces, how the capabilities will actually operate together. And because again, to mirror a comment I mentioned earlier, they're just, the self-defense forces are not known for their jointness. They, they have some good equipment. They have a lot of advanced equipment, but being able to have the three four services operate together in a contested environment is a big question mark. Just a few months ago, there was the first ever joint air patrol uh, between Russia and uh, China in Northeast Asia. And as part of that uh, uh, patrol, a Russian aircraft overflew the island uh, that is disputed between uh, Japan and uh, Korea, known in uh, Korean as Dokdo, and I think in Japanese as um, Takeshimi, Takeshima. And I'm wondering how you would interpret that air patrol. What is it that China is going to, uh, is seeking to achieve? And uh, as we were talking about in our closed door meeting this morning when this came up, that most people were surprised by this. So what does this perhaps tell us we need to be prepared for in the future? What are the, what are the other things that um, China, and particularly jointly with Russia, might do? Because that appears to be a relationship 
um, that is expanding now in operational ways that we should be paying attention to? Either one of you can respond to that. So, well, in my understanding, that, that those kind of uh, strategic collaboration between China and Russia, the, in uh, Japan's the security and intelligence community, maybe it has, the, has already the, uh, expected that in near future, uh, China and Russia conducted to those kind of operations. Uh, from that perspective, the, I had some, and during that a couple of months, I had some opportunity to participate in the same Japan, uh, US, and Korea trilateral track 1.5 and track 2 dialogue. At that time, I sometimes uh, mentioned and recommended if China or Russians the uh, Air Force the fly over to the the our. Uh, air defense identification zone, the, which means that the, please look, look at some the map or the uh, air identif defense identification zone in the East China Sea. A part of the areas is overlapped by the Japan's IDs and the South Korea's IDs and the China's IDs. So in that context, I sometimes recommend it to the the ROK colleagues, the Japan and South Korean Air Force uh, should, uh, should conduct to, to this time the more prior discussion. How do we deal with that if those kind of contingencies occurs? The how do we deal with the, our the, uh, rule of engagement for our Air Forces? So that is one of the potential uh, cooperation areas to, even if we had some the political struggle between the two, two, two countries. But unfortunately, that uh, I uh, noticed some the positive perspective about the, the current Japan, the uh, South Korean relationships. But uh, I think that that is one of the uh, possible area to cooperate with each other. Yeah, I, I would give, um, I guess, two things to say about that. One is that if you take the assumption that China and Russia are trying to probe our responses or probe allied responses to incursions, then I would say that that, that is the perfect seam to, to probe, given the you're picking a territorial dispute between uh, two US allies and trying to see how they react. And so I, I think that is just textbook definition of probing allied responses, uh, especially coming at a time that Seoul and Tokyo are not enjoying the, the greatest of relations, to put it mildly. Um, the second, and this is sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a tangential um, comment, but at a time that at least the Kante, the, the prime minister's office in Japan, seems intent on trying to make a peace treaty with Russia, I think it should at least remind Tokyo in some regards what Russia's true intents are and, and how, uh, how peaceful they, they are, their feelings may be uh, towards uh, Japanese interests. So we have about 15 minutes or so left and I wanna open up the floor to all of you to join in the conversation and ask questions. We'll have microphones that will come over to you and um, please wait for the microphone and then identify yourself and then um, please ask a, a fairly brief, cogent question. So who would like to start? Okay, up here in front.
Um, good afternoon, Piotr from SICE. Um, I just love asking questions. I'm here often. Um, but my question, I wasn't going to ask one, and then your last comment suddenly made me think of something, which was a year ago when I was sitting here listening to John Mearsheimer, I asked him about what would it take for the United States and Russia to be a little bit more collaborative. Um, and he said uh, that would only be the rise of China. Um, so then my partial question is, how much do you agree with that? And second half is just, Russia is a, a, a mid, in sort of a, a, quite an important middle component between the West and China, I think, because it represents literally such a large geographical area. The ethnic spans of it is just humongous, and there's, there's potential, I think, for greater um, engagement. But um, do you think that that is not going to be possible because of their continued partnerships with, uh, with the Chinese military? and to what extent that might cost uh, any potential for a Japanese-Russian uh, improvement in relations. Thank you. Who would like to start? Jeff? Can I just clarify, was it, I, I had a problem hearing the question, but was it, was your question was what would it take for U.S. and Russia to cooperate? And was that was? My comment to John Mearsheimer was mm. what would it take for uh, Russia and the U.S. to be uh, more collaborative in international affairs, and he said that would only be the rise of China, and with that occurring, should we say, in partial tandem with Russia's uh, assistance, how much do you agree with that, and generally your, your opinions? Thank you. Well, given that I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I must confess, I'm not a, I'm not a Russian expert, so I, I can't, uh, speak to the same same confidence but given that the united states i think if you look at the world and you look at the geopolitical interests given that the united states russia and china there's some areas of of that they should be able to cooperate right there's some areas for instance um i think the united states needs china needs russia when it comes to north korea we can't do it alone there, there's, there's definitely a, an area of overlap there where we should find uh, cooperation. But when you look at the, the theater, sort of the actions that Russia's taking in Europe, the actions that China's taking in Asia, and even some of the actions that China's taking in Europe, if you look at some of the questions about uh, Russian influence, or I'm sorry, Chinese influence in the, in the, in the European economies, buying some key uh, industries. I, I just don't see the overlap of where the rise of China itself would be enough to bring Russia and the United States together. So I, I don't necessarily agree that that in, in and of itself is going to be the glue that makes the United States and Russia cooperate. I might briefly just add to that, having just been at a meeting with uh, some Russians and uh, Chinese, uh, I think that there's, uh, that Russia and China have shown an uncanny capability of, of working together. And many people predicted we would have this, you know, axis or marriage of convenience, um, and uh, uh, that the things that drove them apart, like, competition in Central Asia would really override those areas where they have common interests. 
but the Russians and Chinese have really been able to compartmentalize those differences and find areas to cooperate because they really share an interest in undermining what they see as U.S. hegemony around the world, working together for you know, state sovereignty and cyber governance, for example. So the rise of China has not been seen, I think, yet by Russia as a sufficient threat. And I think they've really actually used it to their advantage. So these you know, notions that Russia wouldn't want to be the junior partner and this, oh, the things that would drive them apart have not yet materialized. And I'm not yet convinced that they will. Of course, the um, tension in US-Russia relations, there's a lot of reasons to expect that those will continue. So I, I personally doubt the rise of China is going to drive the US and Russia together. Another question? Yes, up here. I'm first year student from Alice School of International Affairs. And my question is that uh, the 048 project of the PRC Navy, uh, um, uh, per provided by 2004, uh, plans that uh, they will build six carriers, including two CVN, um, before the 2030. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm going to ask. Uh, what measures does the Japanese uh, self-defense, uh, Marine Self-Defense Force will take uh, to increase the uh, uh, deniability uh, toward Chinese Navy uh, in the first chain in the incoming future? So you're going to have to, re can you bring the microphone back? All right, so maybe don't hold the microphone so close to your mouth. Um, and j I, we didn't completely understand that. Um, my question is that. Move back the microphone a little bit? Yeah, OK, thank sorry. you. My question is that the 048 project of PRC Navy, I mentioned in 2004, plan to build six carriers, including two civilians. Uh, pure to uh, before the 2030. Six carriers by 2030. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what measures do you uh, think uh, Japan will take uh, to increase the uh, maritime deniability in the first entry toward Chinese Navy? Okay. So what are the capabilities or what are the steps that Japan is taking to respond to this potential threat? Well, I think I, I'll take the first stab of it, at it. I don't think it, Japan is not in a position to try to outbuild the Chinese Navy. That's just unrealistic. And so if the, the Chinese, if their plan is to have six carriers, uh, don't expect Japan to try to build six carriers or seven carriers. It's just never going to happen. They don't have, first, they don't have the financial resources. But more importantly, they don't have the manpower. If you look at the current uh, self-defense forces, they're just, they're already struggling with recruitment. Um, and so that's, that's a big issue. Um, so if it's not apples to apples, if, if Japan's not going to be trying to outspend or outbuild the Chinese Navy, the question is, what are they going to do? I think you're going to see um, a continuing st strengthening of the US-Japan alliance since that is, Japan relies on the United States for uh, extended deterrence. And so that is, first and foremost, the central strategy for Japan. Uh, I think if you're extending the timeline out here over the next couple decades, you probably see Japan move more into unmanned assets um, that do not require the same amount of manpower and, and maintenance and all this 
resources that are required for the big platforms. I think you're going to see Japan move into those capabilities. Um, again, it's not going to try to outbuild the Chinese Navy. That's impossible. Um, but what Japan can do is, as long as the U.S.-Japan alliance is firm and strong and um, you know, there used to be this, I remember hearing from people in the MOD that uh, as long as China is stronger than Japan, but Japan and the U.S. together are stronger than China, that, as long as that equation holds, things are okay. Uh, I don't know if that's still the logic in the MOD, but I remember hearing that for many, many years. Um, but as long as the U.S.-Japan alliance remains firm, capabilities, the commitment, all of that remains solid, then I think you have, uh, you're going to see much of the same in terms of Japan strengthening strategic relationships in the regioning, uh, increasing exercises and training and capacity building with other states, um, as well as developing in different domains that it's doing now. Because if, you, if your, your question in terms of carriers, now carriers is not the way of the future in terms of warfare. It's going to be more in space, cyber, electromagnetic. And the fact that Japan is finally putting resources into this, I think that's where you're going to see Japan putting a lot of its efforts because there it can uh, potentially have a comparative advantage at some point, um, but it's not going to be carriers. So I, I, I completely agree with the, Dr. Honan's comment. The, the actually, that. When I read to the, now the, the latest version of the National Defense Program guidelines, my uh, assessment of this document is the, the one point good things is the, the document is the uh, comprehensively cover to the, our challenges. But uh, still, the, we had a, in the, inside of the Tokyo, we still have some the uh, political argument between the how do we prioritize our the, uh, uh, defense portfolios. But the personally, the, my perspective is the con uh, considering of the, the long-term strategic competitions. The, one of the key elements is this concept, is the identifying the, our advantages and disadvantages. And we need to fight in the, in the favorable domain for how we, where we have the advantages. In that context, that, that we needed to consider the cost-imposing cost strategy against China. But the, when, if we have the many high-value assets like uh, aircraft carriers, it could be caused by the cost from our side. So it's called, uh, ironically, cost-imposed strategy for us. So we need to avoid those kind of the situations. So in that context, I, I completely agree that aircraft carriers and the carrier-like vessels is not an answer. We needed to the, consider a more effective the, uh, strategic portfolio, like uh, ground-based missiles, long-range counter-ship ground-based missiles, or some type of the long-range ballistic missiles. I think that this is my personal opinion, but uh, it is more cost-effective measures to offset to the Chinese advantages. Okay, another question. Yes, right here. Thank you. Dong Huiyu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. I, I have a re relevant question. Um, how do you see the implication of uh, the Chinese first uh, indigenous aircraft carrier sailing through the Taiwan Strait in, uh, in the last couple of days uh, for the United States and Taiwan. 
And for uh, Mr. Hanan, you mentioned that the aircraft carrier is not the future of the world. Do you mean that you uh, downplay the significance of the aircraft carrier in the you know, uh, regional maritime power balance? Thank you. I'll answer that question first. My view is that when you look at, uh, in the Japanese context, China for, what, the last 10 years has been developing an, a carrier-killing missile and capabilities. For Japan to develop or refurbish two of their helicopter destroyers into exactly the capability that China has been developing a capability to destroy, I just think that it's a fool's errand. I'm not particularly sold on the Japanese decision to refurbish the Izumo class. Um, the F-35B variant, that's a different story. Those are two separate discussions. But I think when you look at um, the fact that uh, from the Japanese standpoint, uh, resource, manpower issues, carriers is not the future. It's, it, you have to fight, you have to build with what you have. And you have a technologically advanced society with, that's literate and, and all the things that they do, that Japan does well in terms of robotics and unmanned and computers, these are areas that Japan, I think, will excel in going into the future. And the fact that we see a dedication of that in the defense budgets uh, in terms of uh, space, cyber, it's not there yet. And if you read the ATLA, the Acquisition Technology Logistics Agency R&D vision, it's online, you can see it. If you look at that, and it, it lays out the timeline of where their capabilities are going to be in the next, uh, in the first National Defense Program guidelines, which is 10 years, and then out to the next 10 years, there's a lot that Japan has to do. But they're doing it. They're putting the resources there. It's going to take a while. Um, but what you do, I, I just don't believe that carriers are there. So that's, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking specifically for, the, for Japan. I am not going to pretend to sit up here and speak for other armed forces, including my own, uh, the U.S. government, so. <laughs> so, well, the, if I add in that some comments, the, I think I already mentioned that uh, similar the, uh, comments. In my understanding, the aircraft carrier or uh, aircraft carrier-like capabilities like ISMO. And if, if I said that, the Chinese artificial islands, is some, those kind of assets had the same the operational and the psychological effect, which means that I think that once war starts, the U.S. forces could be easily the destroyed, the Chinese aircraft carriers and Chinese artificial islands. But the problem is that before that starting the war, those kind of capabilities and artificial islands or aircraft carriers still remains. And China could be used showing the force or some coercion from the neighboring countries. So I already pointed out that it's, it's a flip side of the coin. The, as the how do we dealing with the forward presence in the, uh, it, during the peacetime? And how do we balance between the, uh, uh, avoiding the vulnerabilities of the wartime? Which means that if the, our uh, Ismocras carrier with F-35 could be showing the force during the peacetime or gray zone situation to deter uh, Chinese coercion. So, but this is niche capabilities. 
to competing with the same domain is with China. If we had some the advantages, for instance, we have the much more some budget and resources and human resources and the asset resources. Yes, I, we, if we have those kind of resources, yeah, we can do those kind of uh, competitions. But if we had some, if we don't have some sufficient budget and assets, we don't. I think that we don't need to take those kind of options because of the we need to fight more the appropriate way to using some the some other advantages such as the underwater capabilities or some other areas that air. Uh, or the space and cyber or electromagnetic spectrum. That is one of the key the uh, point, key finding to the our latest national defense program guideline. So that's in my, my understanding of the role of the aircraft carriers. I would just add that the passage of the Liaoning through the Taiwan Strait um, uh, certainly may have had uh, operational. Um, significance, but definitely had a political signaling intentions as well. As we know, Taiwan's elections is only uh, two months away, and uh, I'm sure that China is taking various steps to put pressure on Taiwan. Some of them are visible, some of them are not. Um, I hear there's a lot of cyber attacks that are going on. Uh, but uh, I would note the uh, statement by the Ministry of National Defense in Taiwan that said that those ships were being trailed not only by U.S. Navy vessels, but by Japan's Navy vessels. And I think that that is very interesting. I have not seen that reported before. I don't know if it's the for, for the first time, but maybe it tells us um, at, at a minimum that the United States and Japan are concerned uh, about the activities, the, the, the naval activities and that uh, China is engaged in. Um, and one could perhaps even interpret it as a possible joint actions in the future. So uh, uh, I think that's, uh, it's always worth paying attention to the reactions of other countries, not just the actions by, uh, by the PLA Navy. We are at exactly two o'clock and we're gonna move to our next panel on the South China Sea. Please join me in thanking Murano-san and Jeff Hornell. Don't get easier. Um, we'll look next at the South China Sea, and we'll hear from two uh, experts who, um, if you uh, follow these issues, you will certainly have heard of and you would have read their work. Um, uh, we'll hear first from Greg Poling, who's here at CSIS. He's the director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and a fellow in the Southeast Asia program at CSIS. He's a graduate of St. Mary's College and AU, and he's published on not only the developments in the South China Sea, but also um, the historical context and future-oriented ideas about how a code of conduct or other diplomatic efforts might look. Um, and then we'll turn to Colin Kosuilin from uh, the 
Rajaratnam School of International uh, Studies, RSIS, <clears throat> in uh, Singapore, where he's a research fellow in the Institute for Defense and Strategic Studies. Um, uh, Colin's also a prolific writer on maritime security issues in the South China Sea, <clears throat> and in Singapore has been an instructor at various professional military schools and uh, uh, an advisor to the government and uh, to many of us on what is happening in the South China Sea. So we'll want to unpack also uh, in this discussion for the next 45 minutes what we think Chinese intentions are, uh, the extent to which China is, is shapeable, to which we can impose costs or otherwise um, protect uh, freedom of navigation, uh, protect smaller states from coercion. Um, and we'll want to unpack that in the discussion and hear from you again as well. So why don't we start off the discussion with uh, Greg. Uh, thank you. I, I, um, I just want to spend a few minutes uh, laying out where I think the situation stands in 2019, and then we can take the discussion from there, because I do think that um, in many ways the debate was in Washington, and also in regional capitals, uh, has not moved on that much from where it was in 2016, and has fallen behind Chinese developments on the water in particular. So, you know, we're still talking about militarization and island building. Those fights were lost years ago. Uh, if we look at the rapid changes to the status quo that Beijing has orchestrated, think of this in a series of phases. At the end of 2013, dredgers show up. They start building seven artificial islands in the Spratlys. They also start massively expanding their capabilities in the Paracels, where they have 20 islands. That largely finishes by middle of 2016. Um, no new dredging has really gone on in the Spratlys since then. There's been a little touch-up work in the Paracels by early 2017. But then you move into phase two, and that is the completion of all the dual-use infrastructure that you need to actually make use of these things. And that is largely done by the end of 2017. Um, hangars, missile shelters, buried storage for fuel and ammunition, all the port facilities, all the radar and signals intelligence capabilities, that's all been done for two years now. Phase three starts at the end of 2017, and that's the very rapid deployment of high-end military platforms. So we had the first landings of military aircraft at Subi and Mischief Reefs. They had already landed at, at Firecross. Not combat aircraft, but uh, maritime patrol and transport aircraft. Then you have uh, deployments of jamming equipment, which continue to harass U.S. and, and other foreign militaries flying over the South China Sea. You have the deployment of the first cruise missiles and uh, surf air missiles to all three of the major islands in the Spratlys, as well as a huge increase in the number of missile platforms deployed on Woody Island uh, in the Paracels. And most worryingly, you have a very rapid increase in the number of Coast Guard and Chinese maritime militia vessels who are basically home ported in the Spratly Islands. The numbers skyrocket. They are no longer just visiting, they are effectively stationed uh, in those islands, at least for weeks or months at a time. And that brings us to 2019, where I think we've moved into a new phase, um, one highlighted most clearly over the last four months by the standoff off Vietnam. That is the constant low-level uh, exercise of coercive power short of military force in a way that was impossible before China completed these islands. Uh, if you go back to 2012, 2013, it was relatively rare to see Chinese vessels in the Spratly Islands, except immediately around their outposts. They would sail out from Hainan or from Woody Island. They would spend a few days raising the flag, and then they would have to go back home. They don't have to do that anymore. 
And so now there are Chinese maritime militia vessels. Um, our studies show well over 300 on any given day operating throughout every inch of the nine dash line every day. If you're a Filipino fisherman or a Vietnamese fisherman, you're pretty much guaranteed to run into one sooner or later. The same applies now to oil and gas. Beijing has clearly decided, probably as of last year, certainly as of this year, that it will no longer tolerate any new oil and gas development in the South China Sea, even in existing oil and gas blocks. So if you've already got a well, you're not going to be able to drill another well right next to it. Uh, we saw that starting in May with harassment of some shell affiliates working off Malaysia. And then we saw very clearly off the coast of Vietnam, where for four months you had about 40 Chinese Coast Guard and militia vessels, both harassing drilling work being undertaken by Rosneft and also engaging in their own survey to send the Vietnamese a message. Uh, so where we are now is increasingly Chinese forces are able to increase the heat, make it prohibitively risky for civilian actors from throughout the region to go about their normal business. We're increasingly getting to a place where it will be impossible for fishermen, oil and gas operators, Southeast Asian law enforcement to stomach the risk it would take to operate in their own EEZs in the way that they always have. And the US and partner nations, whether it's Japan, Australia, France, UK, we've been caught somewhat flat-footed. We don't have a toolkit ready to respond to this. We don't have rules of engagement for what to do about armed fishermen. We don't really understand how to impose costs on China outside of the military domain. State Department, Treasury, even the White House have been largely missing here. And so we've left the Pentagon sailing FONOPs and increasing capacity building in the region, all of which is very nice and very necessary, but it's not doing anything to protect the legal rights in peacetime of our partners. The risk being that we will get to a place soon where Southeast Asian states, especially the Philippines, the U.S. Treaty ally, will start to wonder if a U.S. forward deployed presence in Asia is not helping me, it's not helping my oil and gas operations, not helping my fishermen, why am I supporting it? And that's a very dangerous place for the U.S. to get to. And I'll wrap there. Thank you. I think, Greg, you had more or less covered so much, and I don't really see how I could value-add except to probably touch on a few salient points, and I think perhaps to first ask the question about what exactly is the South China Sea to China, and whether we could shape China's behavior in the South China Sea. I'll go back to my original argument that instead of we trying to shape Chinese behavior, I think it's the other way around. Beijing wants to shape our behavior uh, instead in the South China Sea. But first of all, it's perhaps to acknowledge that the South China Sea is basically what the Chinese will call the blue territory. It carries you know, strategic, economic, emotional, as well as historical significance. And that gives rise to how China looks at the South China Sea on the whole. It's not just about you know, protecting your sovereignty and your rights, but also to create what I would call a strategic debt that can promote um, you know, greater security for mainland China. So it carries all these you know, significance such that these are, cannot be yielded as you know, interest um, to the other parties. But again, I will look at mostly the military uh, aspects of the South China Sea, what China has been doing over the past few years. And we look at largely the projection of military assets over the course of 
the past decade. And you find that, I mean, on the whole, the number of ships, say, for example, in the South Sea Fleet, and right now the Navy of the Southern Theatre Command has generally been hovering around the same numbers. But even that, as it may, I mean, it's important to look at the qualitative improvements that the Chinese Navy and Air Force has achieved over the past few years. Numbers may have remained static, but the type of capabilities that were being infused into service have become increasingly uh, more capable. And not to forget also, in concurrence with the build-up of mobile assets, we're looking at the build-up in missile arsenal that can allow force projection further afield, even beyond the South China Sea. And in the most recent years, we have been seeing some very interesting developments when it comes to the PLA services trying to promote more joiners amongst themselves. For example, the rocket force coordinating with the support force and coordinating with the Navy in offshore um, training exercises. So that is uh, of great significance. And lastly, the one other very important aspect is, as what Greg has mentioned earlier, would be the artificial islands that were being built uh, so far. And suffice to say is, minus away the Scarborough shore, I think basically the construction has been done and it has been dusted as well. And what we are seeing here in the next five to ten years will be the maintenance of these outposts and to beef up their capabilities. That I had some um, more nuanced um, argument towards that. I mean, there's news that talks about the deployment of electronic warfare systems, um, you know, HQ-9 surface-to-air missile systems, anti-ship missiles, but what suffice to say is that those are essentially mobile systems. I mean, very often we imagine that you put those systems on the islands and they stay there forever. But if you look at the general Chinese military modernization, you'll find that there have been greater emphasis on essentially mobile and radially deployable systems. And the fact that those artificial islands have airstrips and harbors could allow the rapid deployment of these systems and in converse, rapid withdrawal of these systems allow the Chinese more flexibility in terms of areas like escalation control as well as signaling. So what is actually more important wasn't so much about the weapon systems that were being put in place, but more because of the existing infrastructure that allows China their freedom of options to pursue. And that, of course, raises the question of what do we mean by militarization? If you are talking about mobile systems that can be put into place and withdrawn any time that you want, and how do you find ways to tackle that particular aspect? Say, for example, I would always want to argue in the current context of the negotiation over the core conduct in the South China Sea. And, of course, for the Chinese, I, I wanted to just raise some, you know, a sort of counterpoint to what most will see as, you know, the islands that could never go away. They are like unsinkable aircraft carriers. I, I would venture a little bit towards, you know, being a little bit more uncertain to that. I think suffice to say is, I think PLA officials... Uh, privately and publicly have acknowledged that in a wartime situation, these islands are practically close to useless. They will be taken out almost immediately in the onset of any conflict in the South China Sea. But what we see here will be largely those islands being used for peacetime utility, like for example, you know, used for blockading actions, some limited forms of offensive operations, but more likely defensive operations. 
And the bigger questions that I thought the Chinese were facing right now is how to viably and sustainably operate those islands and to ensure that they remain there. And currently, it was interesting to note that the Chinese do actually have some questions as to whether those artificial islands are geomorphologically stable in the longer term. And right now, currently, they are conducting studies, for example, looking at how coral and concrete can actually glue together properly so that they will not be washed away, they will not be corroded over time by the natural elements of the weather and the climate. As well as the whole big question of military assets operating in essentially a saline maritime environment. The one interesting thing is that the PLA acknowledges and they are very proud to say that they have reached a stage where they could reduce and mitigate cor uh, corrosion for airframes. But they have also acknowledged that in terms of preventing or mitigating corrosion on electronic systems, because this is very separate. We look at platforms not just in terms of the frame itself, but also electronics. For electronics, the Chinese find themselves rather not so capable in terms of mitigating and preventing corrosion. So they are trying to find ways and means to do that. In the next five to 10 years, there's a high chance that the Chinese will find a way to get around with these um, challenges. But then again, the bigger question will be, you know, how those islands will feature or play a bigger role in a future conflict or a limited conflict scenario in the South China Sea. But what is certain to me is, you know, if you put aside the question of whether those islands do exist in five to ten years' time, whether they got sunk by, you know, a natural disaster or they just got corroded naturally away. But what's more certain is that, you know, one area that we have forgotten and we might not have been too focused a lot is the area of what we call maritime domain awareness. That is part of a bigger picture of what we call ISR capabilities. The Chinese have been moving very, very resolutely into this direction. And the one area that I thought was interesting is the very dual use, sometimes very innocuous sounding term called ocean observation network. And that ocean observ observation network has been acknowledged as not just to mitigate or prevent natural disasters at sea, but more ostensibly used for military purposes. And in that regard, we are seeing here in the next five to 10 years, tremendous amount of effort put in by the Chinese in terms of improving especially the area of underwater observation, and that will pertain to the whole question of acoustics. One area that, you know, so far has evaded much of the scrutiny because, you know, the Chinese were actually benefiting from a whole slew of international collaborative R&D arrangements with various key institutions that somehow indirectly fits into these programs and could allow them to have what I will call, you know, not just domain awareness, but dominant awareness in the South China Sea in the next five to 10 years. So with that, I stop here and for more discussion, thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. I'm intrigued by your research that shows that um, Chinese engineers are worried about the coral and the cement ceasing to bond um, and uh, potentially the structures sliding into the ocean. I was reminded, some of you will remember about four or five years ago, there was a member of Congress who said in open testimony that the Chinese were building so many military bases that these islands would just tip over and everyone laughed at him, but he may have been right. <laughs> he, may, he may have been right. Um, so um, in the first panel and then in this panel, there was a general consensus, I think, that in a war fighting or high-end war fighting scenario, 
um, these artificial islands and maybe the Izumo <laughs> class uh, carriers are, are easy targets. Um, but um, of course the Chinese strategy is to, and our strategy is to win the peace, is to uh, achieve objectives without fighting, which would be catastrophic and potentially even regime ending. Um, so if you think about it in terms of um, gray zone coercion and, 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 and winning uh, without fighting, um, Greg, you mentioned that some of our friends in Southeast Asia, um, and you were talking about countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, and so forth that are not treaty allies, would ask why should we support the US or the US alliance system, uh, the countries that really support the US alliance system are Japan first and foremost, and then Australia, Korea, um, and to a much lesser extent our treaty allies in Southeast Asia, Singapore of course, with a strategic framework agreement. So could you say a bit more about what this scenario looks like? One uh, narrative I can imagine would be in the code of conduct, that the Chinese side is pushing to have the code of conduct on negotiations for the uh, South China Sea include language that says no non-claimant can do military exercises, which would mean us, Japan, Australia, Britain, France. Um, ASEAN has held pretty firm on that. Is that one example of how this starts to look? What are others? What does it do to us if in the end we lose support, not in Japan or Australia, but within Southeast Asia for our forward presence? I don't worry that much. I mean, there's been a lot of, of ink spilled about these uh, Chinese insertions into the single draft negotiating text for the Code of Conduct, one of which would ban all foreign military activities without China's permission. Another would ban all oil and gas activities by foreign companies. The first of those, China inserted into the original Code of Conduct negotiations in 1998. So I, I don't worry that much that ASEAN's suddenly going to bend on that. What I worry about is the Philippines, mostly. Um, you get to a place where uh, kind of everything that, that Rodrigo Duterte has been saying about U.S. unreliability is proven correct by a Chinese rapid change to the status quo, perhaps at Scarborough, or a blockade of Second Thomas Shoal, where the, the Filipinos have about a dozen Marines on the Sierra Madre. We did enormous damage to our credibility in Manila in 2012 with our failure to respond in any effective way to the Chinese seizure of, of Scarborough Shoal. The Filipinos also know that we have kind of uh, rewritten history when it comes to the fact that we, for decades, recognized their sovereignty over that feature and now claim that that, that didn't happen. Uh, Duterte ran on this platform arguing that the Americans were unreliable and therefore he had no option but to seek a detente with the Chinese. If you imagine a, a, a situation like another blockade of the Sierra Madre, which remember, China tried in 2014 for about six weeks. They prevented any resupply. Manila had to airdrop in supplies. They finally ran the blockade with a civilian boat with a USP-8 overhead to let the Chinese know we were watching. If this time either the Chinese open fire and the Americans don't respond, which, by the way, it's unlikely we would because we don't have any ground-based air assets closer than 1,300 nautical miles away in Okinawa. I mean, a small air wing in Singapore, but it's not going to be useful in this contingency. Or the Filipinos decide in advance that they can't trust the Americans, that the risk is too high. And remember, for the Philippines, they have virtually no capability here. Their only option is to put their own men in harm's way, trusting the deterrent effect of the American alliance. That's an enormously long branch to ask somebody to go out on. Um, so I worry that we get to a place there where either we fail or we have failed to convince the Filipinos that we have their back. And it effectively breaks the back of the alliance. And if you break the back of the Philippine alliance, any 
contingencies we have in the South China Sea, any hope we have of, of moderating Chinese behavior, we can forget about it. They are frustrating, but the necessary component here. So as Stonewall Jackson would say, in the situation like that, you should fight them where they ain't. Um, and so maybe uh, the U.S. and Japanese or Australian or allied response should not be uh, at the Sierra Madre. Maybe it should be broader. Maybe it should be um, operationalizing the Quad in a more substantive way, imposing geopolitical costs. Um, Colin, do you think there are ways to deter the kind of escalation Greg is describing in the South China Sea without actually getting into a tit-for-tat standoff around the Sierra Madre or other areas where perhaps the U.S. would be at a tactical disadvantage where the risk of escalation would be something we wouldn't want to accept? Thank you. I think perhaps what is more important in this context is to empower the Southeast Asian countries. And I think this is nothing new. Uh, I think what we are seeing here is basically a continuation enhancement of existing initiatives that help to boost Southeast Asia's maritime domain awareness capability. And I think perhaps I will say something more important, because since you touch on the Quad, I mean, I go beyond the Quad and to look at, you know, maybe, you know, close U.S. allies and partners who have common interests in the South China Sea, at least to try to coordinate or to synergize efforts in capacity building. Because what we are seeing here right now is a hodgepodge of very different initiatives that were being implemented so far in the South China Sea. And how are we going to harmonize all them together to ensure there is no duplication and no overlaps in those uh, capacity building? I thought that is probably one area to at least try to minimize the adverse impact of, you know, responding to such a situation that you just mentioned in the South China Sea. Let me ask you both, what is a realistic and satisfactory equilibrium in the South China Sea in the coming five to ten years? We met earlier and there was a broad consensus among all the participants in the discussion that rollback is not very likely. Um, you know, uh, we might get lucky, the islands might tip over, but, um, but rollback is not very likely. Um, as you pointed out, Greg, the situation deteriorated before much of Washington, with the important exception of AMTI and CSIS, before much of uh, Washington woke up to it. <clears throat> when I worked in the Pentagon some two decades ago, uh, the response to the Taiwan military uh, or Taiwan missile crisis was the U.S. sent two carrier battle groups through the South China Sea with great impunity. Um, in a crisis right now, that would be a hard call. Um, uh, so uh, I'm not sure uh, that, um, how can I put this, I, I, I think both sides now have deniability, have, have contested can contest the South China Sea, <clears throat> neither yet dominates it. Um, so what is a good equilibrium we could live with, is that it? Um, and what's maybe the worst case scenario? Why don't you start, start go ahead, Greg. Um. I mean, so keeping in mind that five to ten years, we're talking about management. We're not talking about solutions to the South China Sea. I doubt anybody living in this room is going to see the South China Sea resolved. No territorial dispute in Asia has been resolved in a century. What we want to do is find some sustainable way to manage the disputes over sea and airspace. And that's where outside powers' interests really are, right? We don't have a national interest in who controls what rock in the Spratly Islands. We have a national interest in one, uh, credibility of our alliance commitments, especially the Philippines, because it undergirds our entire posture in Asia, and two, defense of freedom of the seas, a rules-based order that's been an abiding U.S. interest since Jefferson sent the Marines against the Barbary Pirates. Those two things are the only things we need to worry about. 
So on the Philippine side, we absolutely have to strengthen our posture, and that means uh, implementation of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. If we don't have U.S. forces rotating through Philippine bases in five or ten years, this is over. I don't see how it's not. I'm a contrarian on the idea that we can easily take out these Chinese bases, because with what assets? Any aircraft carrier in the South China Sea is going to run for Guam the second anything breaks out, because the Chinese have air dominance, unless we get aircraft into the Philippines. So that's number one. Number two is we need to find a way to get back to where we were in 2016, which was effectively an international, robust coalition of states naming and shaming China, seeking ways to impose reputational costs, and add to that economic costs. We should be sanctioning Chinese entities who engage in illegal paramilitary activities in the South China Sea in the exact same way that we have Russian entities in eastern Ukraine, or the way that we punish you know, Chinese companies that smuggle to North Korea. We haven't had any serious discussion about this, but the goal has to be to impose just enough costs that Beijing starts looking for off-ramps. Now, those off-ramps are not going to be a return to the status quo ante. They're going to be things like a more equitable joint resource development agreement with the Southeast Asians, maybe some kind of joint marine uh, fisheries management regime, you know, things that can happen within the technical letter of UNCLOS that still give China more than we might like to see them have, but it's better than the alternatives. Thank you. I'm not so sure whether we can reach an equilibrium position. I think much of it depends on a lot of things. Assuming that those islands don't get washed away or by any geomorphological phenomenon and the Chinese finally found a way to sort of, you know, strengthen them, make them stay forever. I think much of it depends on a few factors. One is, I think in the next five to ten years, we'll be envisaging the promulgation of a core conduct. I mean, because they were talking about three years, right? So let's assume that in the next five years, give them two years more. Five years, they have a core conduct. My very not so sanguine thought is the moment they sign it and they have their ASEAN handshake together, take the picture out of it, they have the headlines being splashed with, you know, their achievement in less than one year time, you're going to see the core conduct rendered to being useless. Like what, like what happened in the 90s, basically. Right? Yeah. And, and that largely also because the one big question we ask, and probably the Chinese were also going to ask is, once we sign the core conduct, will that be the end of foreign military activities in the South China Sea? And I don't think we are going to envisage that happening, largely because all of us will agree that the South China Sea is an international medium. And the, the mere operation of military vessels in, you know, even the international waters within the South China Sea could still be deemed as potentially provocative to China to a point that, you know, the court conduct will never hold or will not hold at all. And that actually will may lead to a whole new round of potential escalation and crisis altogether. Now, I'm not trying to apportion any particular blame to anyone, but, you know, what I'm trying to say is that the, the envisaged structure of the court conduct is not likely going to be any type of agreement that makes everybody happy and yet make everybody unhappy at the same time. So that is one issue. The second is, to have the equilibrium, we, we may need to ensure that there is policy consistency on the part of Southeast Asian countries. If you're looking at certain Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia or Philippines who are claimants, and you have to really look at their election cycle, the leaders that were being elected into power and whether they changed their policy in the first place. So I think a lot of it is help mercy to that aspect. 
Okay, we have um, uh, also this panel 15 minutes for questions or comments from the floor. If you could keep them brief and um, identify yourself, we'd appreciate it. Yes, sir. Uh, hand up here. Yeah, put your hand up again so they can see you. Here you go, John, up front. So my name is John. I go to AU, School of International Service. And my question is, we had bases in the Philippines and they were closed at the end of the 20th century, give or take, with BRAC, like um, Subic and I believe Clark, things like that. So if we were to reopen bases in the Philippines, this is a if, um, what would that have, what effect would that have on relations with the Philippines and the region as a whole? And what would the implications of that be, if any? Well, uh, I mean, first, it's, it's nice to see a fellow AU alum. I know it's hard to get out here from the wilderness up in Northwest. Uh, I mean, so we're not talking about new bases. The days of the United States opening new bases in Asia are long behind us. Um, this is what the Obama administration called places, not bases. Uh, in 2014, we signed the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement with the Philippines. It was ruled constitutional by the Philippine Supreme Court in early 2016. It operates under the Visiting Forces Agreement we signed in the Philippines when Manila realized that they had gone a little too far by kicking the Americans out of Subic and Clark because then the Chinese took mischief reef in 95 uh, and they realized that maybe having the Americans close was helpful after all. So the idea would be that uh, U.S. forces who already have a legal ability to operate in the Philippines under the BFA now get to build facilities on Philippine military bases and operate out of those facilities for the duration of the agreement, which the initial is, I think, 10 years with a five-year automatic renewal, so out to 2031, I, I think the clock started in 2016. So we have this legal framework. We just haven't done anything with it. The only thing that's been built was last year we cut the ribbon on what um, we are euphemistically calling an HADR warehouse. Uh, really, it's an open-air pavilion that we built at Basa Air Base. But you know, getting to a place where you're actually building hangars and housing and fuel storage and lengthening runways so you can actually deploy combat aircraft, and then 15 years from now, give it to the AFP. Yeah, the gentleman with the beard, John, just. Hi, Dan Katz, a U.S. Senate. Um, when the Americans abandoned the Kurds, there was a lot of talk about how it was going to affect how other countries view U.S. alliances, despite there not being a formal alliance with the Kurds. But in general, how do actions like that and the repeated asking or demand for more funding for U.S. basing in South Korea. How do U.S. actions like that affect the way regional countries look at the U.S. and its commitment to the region? Very interesting. And, and I thought that sort of brings us back to what happened recently in Syria, for example, and the question that were raised pertaining to whether that reflects the general um, current administration's stance towards, you know, upholding commitments. And I think when we talk about the South China Sea, I think somehow these questions do emerge and they, they arise, but I think there's a sort of a quiet, general sense of confidence that at least for the U.S. military, the presence is going to remain in the region and there is still, you know, very healthy level of commitment to the, to the region as well as you know as a witness in terms of you know the whole range of exercises that have been con conducted in the past few years there is an evident qualitative increase in these exercises and that sort of you know give a very positive signal at least for the US military commitment at least 
You know, the support for U.S. alliances with the, among the American public is the highest it's been in decades um, in the Chicago Council polls and other polls when Americans are asked, should we defend Japan or Korea if they're attacked? Um, close to two-thirds say yes. Um, if you were Japan or Korea, you'd want it to be 100%, but um, 55, 60, 65% of Americans saying we should fight against a nuclear adversary to defend a foreign country. It's a big deal, and if you know the history of polling, it's pretty unusual. Those were not the polls before uh, 1950 in Korea or 1941 with respect to uh, Britain. So um, there's a lot of support for presence, a lot of support for alliances. As you know, there's um, more bipartisan support for our alliances in Asia than I've ever seen working on alliances my entire career. Um, but the president's position, the, the, the really um, extreme demands <clears throat> on Korea in particular, but also Japan for, for, for burden sharing or host nation support, um, and the decision in Syria all <clears throat> erode that confidence. Um, I think it is quite deep in the region as well. <clears throat> Polls in Japan and Korea and Australia are pretty, pretty positive on the whole about alliances. <clears throat> um, but the erosion is definitely happening. And even something as seemingly disconnected as um, backing out of Syria and abandoning the Kurds, um, in, in part the administration has reversed that decision, as you know. <clears throat> but I was in Jakarta and, and uh, uh, Hanoi when that happened. <clears throat> and um, the governments were quite shocked. And part of it for Indonesia was the danger of returning foreign fighters. <laughs> so you can't you know, have stovepipes in regions. But part of it is just the general question of American willpower. Um, and I made the point, look, this is not a treaty ally. It's not, you know, the polls about the Middle East are not as robust in the US as they are about support for Asia. But it, it definitely um, uh, it, it has a corrosive effect on uh, American credibility. Um, I guess the silver lining is um, uh, you know, maybe our allies will be shocked into doing more because um, if we're really going to address this problem and establish, um, uh, impose a cost on, on China for its uh, course of behavior in the East and South China Sea, a lot of that is going to come from alignment of major democracies. Um, maybe the silver lining of all of this will be that um, both Japan and Korea will think even harder about how to make the alliance strong. For example, um, uh, Japan, and Jeffrey uh, has written about this and explained it well, has done a lot under Prime Minister Abe to strengthen the alliance. But we're still well short of what a lot of people think we need in terms of uh, jointness and interoperability. Um, and uh, we have an alliance coordination mechanism, a kind of bureaucratic um, mechanism to coordinate in a crisis, but if you've ever seen a real joint and combined alliance in, in, in operation, like the U.S.-Korea Combined Forces Command, and you realize uh, how far short of that the U.S. and Japan are, that's a lot of homework, and it's the kind of decision-making process, connectivity, command and control relationships you don't want to be making in a crisis. We did it with Japan in response to the March 2011 tsunami and earthquake, but nobody was shooting at us. Nobody was doing um, cyber attacks. Uh, we would be hard pressed in a crisis. And in the case of Korea, which we haven't talked about much, Korea is, uh, is a larger uh, uh, foreign aid donor to Southeast Asia than Australia, but Korea's efforts are almost entirely uh, done without any real coordination with the US or Australia or Japan. Uh, Korea is trying to maintain its, its, its alibi or its neutrality vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm an optimist. Maybe all of these tensions in the alliance will get our allies thinking a little bit harder about how to be more joint with us, how to be more aligned with us. 
um, uh, spending on host nation support. You, if, if Korea and Japan spend as much as we're demanding, we're going to have, it'll be great to be in the U.S. Navy because we're going to have gold-plated bowling alleys. It's, it's going to be awesome. But, uh, but what you really want is uh, jointness and interoperability. That's the real, you want capability, but you need jointness and interoperability too. So maybe out of all these pressures you mentioned, uh, we can turn uh, lemons into lemonade. Um, other, other questions? Yeah, I haven't gone over here yet, so please. Hey, my name is Lee Wing from The Voice of America. I have two questions. From where? For Voice of America. Voice of America? Yeah, uh -huh. to great polling. Um, uh, given that uh, the Philippines uh, treaty, uh, is uh, treaty allies with the U.S., but it cannot uh, rely on the U.S. in defending the Scarborough Show, and now it had to seek repression, uh, uh, rapprochement with China, how far can, can Vietnam uh, trust the U.S.? You know, in pushing back against China in its uh, inclusive economy zone. And the second question is, um, uh, uh, given uh, the formal standoff uh, around in the Venga Bank and uh, Chinese effort to stop any further drillings in the South China Sea, I'm wondering whether China is slowly imposing a new status quo in the South China Sea, one that's revolved around the Nidex line. Thank you. Uh I am not saying that the Philippines cannot rely on the U.S. at Scarborough Shoal. I'm saying the Philippines doesn't know if it can rely on the U.S. at Scarborough Shoal or anywhere else. And that is, is a dangerous place to be. Um, you know, when you look at the polling, over 80% of Filipinos support the alliance, over 70% support a return to basis, the last time the question was asked. But there is a vocal minority, um, the president of the Philippines being one of them, who questions that. And so the U.S. has to do a lot more work to shore that up. And part of that is, you know, in, on March 1st, Secretary Pompeo landed in Manila and said quite clearly that Article 5 of the U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty applies to any attack on Philippine forces in the South China Sea. Uh, no U.S. official had ever said it quite so clearly. Uh, that was welcomed. But again, what assets is the U.S. going to use to back that up? We don't have anything all that close to the Philippines. So we have work to do, that's all I'm saying. On Vietnam, Vietnam is not a U.S. treaty ally. Vietnam's not going to be a U.S. treaty ally. Vietnam does not want to have any allies. Uh, Vietnam's foreign policy is built around the three no's policy. Uh, it does not want a permanent entanglement with any foreign power. Vietnam is also the only country in Southeast Asia with the ability to give the Chinese a bloody nose in the South China Sea. It'll be short and sharp, and they'll lose pretty quickly, but it won't be without cost. And so they do have their own deterrent, and we can help back that up. But I think most of what we do is going to be on the capacity building side and on this kind of horizontal escalation. How do we build political, diplomatic, economic cost? Trusting that if China wants to pick on somebody in the South China Sea, they're going to go for the Philippines or Malaysia, um, at least at the high-end level, because the Vietnamese are the only ones that can actually hit those Chinese bases on their own. Um, and that, I, that also applies when we talk about things like Vanguard Bank, right? We don't have a kinetic solution here to Chinese Coast Guard harassment of oil and gas operations. It all comes down to this horizontal escalation. How do you impose cost on Chinese companies who are engaged in this kind of activity to convince Beijing that they'd be better off finding some other compromise? Uh, and right now, they're not paying any cost. And so why would they seek a compromise? just wanted to add with regard to Vietnam. I think one area to consider is the fact that the Vietnamese military has been using mainly Russian equipment. And I think that in a way also limits the area of collaboration with the US or even 
limiting you know, the manner in which both militaries could potentially work together in times of a crisis. Yeah. So my question would be, how much can the U.S. rely on Vietnam? <laughs> or how much can the U.S. rely on the Philippines when Secretary Pompeo made that um, unprecedented um, statement about uh, the U.S.-Philippines treaty applying, in effect, um, the Philippine Foreign Secretary kind of criticized it, right? Excuse me, Defense Secretary criticized it. And when, uh, when I was working as President Bush's senior advisor on Asia, we reached a series of agreements with Vietnam, um, uh, and, uh, and then Hanoi put us on hold uh, because they had shown to Beijing that the U.S. was there, and then they spent the next few years working out arrangements with Beijing, and then came back to us when Beijing started pushing them around. So, um, you know, the, if you've been in the Asia policy uh, business for a while, you start to recognize a pattern where our friends in Southeast Asia criticize we're not doing enough to stand up to China for about three or four years. Then we do something, then they spend about three or four years criticizing we're doing too much and saying to Beijing, those crazy Americans. <laughs> and you know what? That's okay. That is okay. That is the nature of the strategic game we're in. <clears throat> um, as Henry Kissinger likes to say, these countries in Southeast Asia don't want to have to choose. Um, and our job is not to make these countries choose, it's to make it possible for them uh, to pursue their path without coercion and have options. <clears throat> um, I think uh, that's why I kept coming back to uh, Japan and Australia and India. It's the larger powers that um, uh, that are going to be able to impose geopolitical costs on China. Um, a lot of what I think China's doing in the South China Sea and East China Sea is commercial. A lot of it's about energy. A lot of it is about nationalism and popular opinion at home. A lot of it is history, protecting the maritime flank, where China's century of shame began with the Opium Wars. Um, some of it's war fighting and submarine bastions. Um, it's, a, it's a mix of different things, but a big part of it is um, paving the way for China's rise as the dominant power in Asia. The only way that that does not happen is if the other major powers in Asia align to block China. So if China's uh, behavior becomes coercive and predatory, um, I think the alignment of the big powers at the end of the day is where the cost imposition comes from. And what the big powers then have to do is make sure that the smaller powers um, don't have to choose give them breathing space, give them maritime domain awareness, as we heard, capacity building. Um, and that's why I asked about equilibrium, because it's not impossible that someday China could live with that too. And maybe, I think, 100 years with no resolution? I don't know. That's good business for CSIS, though. But, um, but 100 years with no uh, uh, agreement on energy or infrastructure, maybe, maybe there's some ground there, and you've done some work on this as well. Yeah. I can say, I mean, we've had an outstanding dispute, uh, territorial dispute with Canada for well over 200 years. So I, territorial disputes tend to never get resolved, um, more often than not. What we have to worry about is what happens in the waters, energy, fish. All of that is the actual triggers for conflict. It's not really about the rocks and reefs most of the time. Thank you. So on that, for this topic, comparatively optimistic note, <laughs> um, we're going to take a break until 3 o'clock. There's coffee in the back. We'll resume at 3 and then go south yet again to the Pacific Islands with Pat Buchan. So thanks uh, to the panel, and we'll see you in a 15 minutes.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the, what are we, in the third session now. So as Dr. Green eloquently put out, we're heading north to south. <clears throat> Militarily, it's getting colder where we're going, but I can promise you the climate gets warmer. Um, right, so ladies and gentlemen, we, we have looked at the East China Sea, we've looked at the South China Sea. It's now time to turn the Pacific Islands, which having spent over five years in the United States now, as you can tell from my accent, I'm an Australian. Uh, I'm always uh, caught between the nomenclature of calling it the South Pacific or the Pacific Islands. So for today's audience, we're going to call it the South Pacific. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely delighted to have, uh, without shadow of a doubt, two of the world's foremost political and economic experts on the region of the South Pacific. Uh, to my left, I have fellow Australian colleague Jonathan Pryke. Uh, Jonathan's director of the Lowe Institute Pacific's Islands Program, which those of you who do follow the Pacific will know that's probably the world's, along with Greg's, foremost institution that studies issues of politics and economics in the South Pacific. Greg is a, uh, now a, a two-time man on this stage. Uh, Greg uh, is obviously the director here at uh, AMTI and fellow Southeast Asia Program. Uh, Greg's writings have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Wall Street Journal, Nikkei, Foreign Policy, uh, and is the author of the wonderful book, The South China Sea in Focus, Clarifying the Limits of Maritime Dispute, which Dr. Green referred to in his previous comment. Um, Pat Barkin, I'm the director here of the uh, Alliances Project. Uh, those questions before that were going around about alliances, I was chomping at the bit to jump on stage, but I've been assigned the Pacific Islands. Um, what we're going to do uh, is two, two phases here. Jonathan's going to speak on the Pacific Islands, currently what's happening there at the moment, uh, and from the Australian perspective. Um, Greg will focus on the US perspective on uh, how Washington sees the Pacific Islands. <clears throat> Recently, I met with some uh, cabinet ministers from a uh, Pacific Islands country, and they, they, they noted something interesting to me and said that we feel like we're caught in a 21st century domino theory. And it sort of struck me that we've seen, particularly in the last 18 months, both in US media and Australian media, this kind of hyperbolic uh, debate around the Pacific Islands at the moment, as if you know, you're, sort of, you're either in the US camp or you're in the Chinese camp, uh, with Australia and Japan and New Zealand playing for influence as well. And I think that there's far more nuance to the debate uh, than, than what we see, because if we think about the, uh, the, un the fundamental principle of the free and open Indo-Pacific, it's about sovereignty. So this is not about what Washington wants, or Beijing wants, or Canberra wants, or Wellington wants, or Tokyo wants. It's about what our friends uh, in the South Pacific want. So Jonathan takes a contrary view uh, that I think we've seen many of, of, uh, of the hawkish elements here in Washington, and indeed in Canberra. So it's, a, it's an interesting view I'd like to present to you. So Jonathan, over to you, mate. And uh, interesting to hear what you've got to say on the South Pacific and Australia's perspective. Well, after just introducing me as a panda hugger, you've given me a lot of goodwill in the room to work with. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I'm, as a Pacific analyst, it's great to be back in DC. As a Pacific analyst, we don't have the luxury of leaving our hemisphere too often. Uh, so forgive me if there's any jet lag stumbles in, this, uh, in my talk, but um, it is a delight to be back here in DC. Now, when we begin, when I, I find when I do leave the hemisphere, when we do talk about the Pacific, it's good to start actually defining what is the South Pacific. So the South Pacific, you know, to, I wouldn't expect many people in the room to spend too much time thinking about the South Pacific region, but when you do, you often think of it as a pretty homogenous place, when in fact the Pacific is actually an exceptionally diverse part of the world. It's 14 sovereign nations of, uh, of a cumulative population of 13 million people, spanning across 15% of the world's surface. This is a very diverse part of the world. 
These countries span from the 11,000 person atoll nation of Tuvalu uh, to the 10 million person pop, uh, population of Papua New Guinea with a, that has a landmass the size of, of California. So there's not actually much that is homogenous in the Pacific Islands region. But one, one thing that is homogenous across all Pacific countries except with the, with the exception of Fiji is that of vulnerability. So for these smaller countries, vulnerability from small size, from remoteness, from traditional markets, when you come up, and then, of course, the rampant population growth and the effects of climate change on top of that. When you go to the higher end of town in places like Papua New Guinea, uh, it's natural resource dependence, it's uh, patron endemic patronage systems and corruption. Uh, all of these add up to, to, um, to show that, yeah, the, across the region, they are, these are vulnerable countries. Uh, and I'm going to focus largely on, on China because that's what I guess the, the theme of this, this conference is about. And this, this century, the Chinese footprint in the Pacific has certainly been profoundly growing. While, we have, while there have been pockets of ethnic Chinese in the Pacific for more than a century, I was just two weeks ago in northern Papua New Guinea in a place called Wewak where I met uh, a, a Papua New Guinea Chinese family that were now in their fifth generation of being in, in Papua New Guinea. So there have been these pockets of ethnic, of ethnic Chinese residing in the Pacific for a, a long time, but in the past 15 years, these numbers have exploded. Chinese state-owned enterprises have led the charge here. In pursuit largely of economic opportunity and fueled by Chinese lending, these state-owned enterprises have put down deep roots and are engaged in commercial activity across the board in almost every Pacific Island country. Uh, these, these projects, Chinese labor has arrived through these projects and also through fishing vessels. Uh, and have discovered, uh, paradoxically, most of the Pacific Island countries are actually really high-cost economies. So they discover economic opportunity. If you're a Fujian laborer from, if you're a laborer from Fujian province coming over on a state and enterprise project or on a fishing vessel, you see you can, if you set up a trade store in the Pacific, you can make a heck of a lot more money than you could in Fujian province competing with a million other people setting up trade stores. So there is a big economic pool to the region that is not that we do not see with the West, where they just see a lack of economic opportunity. So anyway, this Chinese labor has arrived and, uh, and remained in the region, setting up uh, trade stores across the region. So we have this spread of Chinese engagement from the top end of town through high-level infrastructure investment, but then all the way down into the, into the provinces, down to small towns. Uh, I was observing the Solomon Islands election earlier this year on a place called Makira, which is an island of about six, 7,000 people. Even on that little island in Solomon Islands, there was a Chinese trade store. So I, I don't want to undersell how profound the footprint of China is in the Pacific Islands region. Uh, but I also cop flack for, for not, not also not being an alarmist. I think it gives uh, China far too much credit to say that since 2006, there has been some grand Mach Machiavellian Politburo uh, Central Committee Pacific Strategy. Um, it's been far more messier than that. It's largely been driven by economic opportunity and, uh, and really human, human um, desires of, of greed and uh, from these state-owned enterprises and, uh, and other actors. Um, so China's really stumbled into this influence it finds itself having in the Pacific Islands region. So, but when you talk to strategic analysts about the motive or when this motive started or when strategy began, they'll tell you it doesn't really this doesn't really matter. Um, strategic analysts look, identify risk through the lens of capability and the lens of intent. You add those two together. Capability is the thing that takes time to build, and China has yeah, built capability really by accident in the Pacific. Intent can change overnight, and so there is now in the, in, 
in Western capitals, particularly in Canberra, but also in DC, there is now absolute certainty that there is strategic intent from China's newfound leverage in the Pacific Islands region. So what are the, the I see, I break down this intent into, or the risks of China's engagement in the Pacific into two categories. The first risk is what I see as being low probability, but a high impact risk, and that is that China will use its leverage, be it debt, diplomacy, trade, to establish some form of permanent military facility somewhere in the Pacific. I say high impact because this would profoundly change the way Australia would look at our own national security. A permanent facility could enable China to more effectively disrupt our East Coast trade routes. As of today, we only have 21 days of fuel reserves in Australia, uh, and that isn't a picture that looks like it's going to dramatically change anytime soon. It would also create a wedge between Australia and our strategic anchor in the United States. But I say low probability because most importantly here uh, is the agency of Pacific Island countries themselves. We talk about sovereignty. Well, the Pacific uh, don't really want further militarization in the region. They didn't have a good go of it in the Second World War or nuclear testing. And so there is a lot of pushback to this idea that uh, they would just surrender some piece of sovereignty um, in exchange for, for some form of debt forgiveness or, or other uh, political compromise. So, um, but so yeah, it's a low probability risk also because the West, led by Australia, have, have taken notice and are being more vigilant on this issue, and I'll, and I'll come back to that in a moment. The second risk, and is one that I see as being of much higher probability but lower impact, is, that, is the way in which China is engaging in the Pacific, mostly through these state-owned enterprises, is undermining already weak and vulnerable institutions in the Pacific. Through elite capture and high-level corruption, largely, again, being driven by individual greed, these countries are becoming even more vulnerable. We run the risk of complete state failure in a Pacific country if trends continue. And I don't make this, I don't say this sitting in my ivory tower in Sydney. I, this, this is the concern I hear from my enlightened colleagues and members of parliament throughout the Pacific. So this is a problem for Australia. We want the Pacific region to be prosperous and would be the first to step in to help pick up the pieces if, if a state were to, to collapse in the region but it would not profoundly change Australia's macroeconomic security settings. You know, so higher probability, but lo lower impact. So fortunately, no one here is standing idle. Our Western nations are scrambling to re-engage. We've had announcements of step-ups, resets, uplifts, pivots, and pledges. Um, this engagement is being spearheaded by Australia, where our new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has made the step-up his flagship foreign policy initiative. It's great for me personally and professionally. Uh, being a Pacific analyst at the Lowe Institute has never looked, um, never looked better. Uh, so thank you, China. But this step-up is by no means... The step-up from Australia is also by no means tokenistic. We're doing more of everything. But the most profound shift is both within the structure of our bureaucracy, giving more profile to the Pacific and our departments of foreign affairs, defence, intelligence, everywhere, but also the, in the attention that has been given to the region by our most senior politicians. In 2019, we've had more than 50 ministerial level visits uh, in either direction uh, to date. And in his first year in office, Prime Minister Morrison has visited the Pacific more times than any of his predecessors in the history of Australia have in their entire tenure as Prime Minister. So by no means tokenistic. So where does this take us? I think this renewed vigilance is helping reduce the risks, but it needs to be consistent to be effective. There is a lot of Australia's history, the US's history in, in the Pacific go a long way further back than China's. And so there's a lot of 
Uh, a lot of memories of neglect. Uh, the, the institutional memory in the Pacific actually goes back a lot further than in Australia. And so consistency in moving forward is what's going to be key. China is also going to have to work harder and in different ways if it wants to continue to build influence. But with some recent uh, diplomatic defections in Kiribati and Solomon Islands, they've got a bit more scope to play with in the Pacific. They are not backing down and they're not being flat-footed in their engagement either. So geopolitics looks to have come home to roost in the Pacific uh, and is, seems to be here to stay in the future. China is not going anywhere. Um, and I'm going to leave it there and look forward to, to any questions and discussion. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, from the Australian perspective about uh, uh, an interesting view, we want to hear what uh, Greg's got to say from the Washington point of view, and then we're going to throw a few questions around. Most importantly, we want to hear what uh, our friends in the audience have got to say. Thanks. Greg. Well, um, <clears throat> first off, let me say I'm, I'm far more optimistic, thankfully, here than I was in the last panel. So uh, hopefully I won't bet everybody else. And uh, I will be using Pacific Islands uh, only to separate myself from the Aussies on the dais. Look, if the U.S. and Australia and our allies you, uh, lose our primacy in the Pacific Islands, we will have nobody to blame but ourselves. Um, this is not a contested space. This is a space that we have overwhelmingly dominated since the end of the Second World War, where we still dominate. Um, that is not to say that we can be complacent, but alarmism doesn't help us. The United States has massive military facilities all along Hawaii and Guam. We have smaller facilities in the Marshall Islands, uh, at Wake Island, we have the three freely associated states. We have another territory in Samoa. Of course, Australia has significant presence. New Zealand, the French have military facilities in New Caledonia and French Polynesia. Compared to that, uh, a wharf at Luganville in Vanuatu seems like us screaming the sky is falling. Um, again, that is not to say that we should be complacent, just that you know, the Chinese are not a threat to, to U.S. or allied primacy in the region and aren't going to be anytime soon. Um, in cases, as we heard, where there has been a real concern about specific projects, we've proven perfectly capable of blocking those. Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, Australia preventing China from taking over the Black Rock camp in Fiji, relatively low cost. If it's really worth it, we can make sure that it doesn't happen. But smaller facilities, dual-use facilities, there's not a lot we can do here. China has developed a blue water navy. The Chinese navy will find places where it will get access. It will be able to resupply and replenish and refuel around the world. And we're just going to have to accept that because every other blue water navy does too. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it. But we can prevent the more worrying actual Chinese bases, which seem unlikely to me as well. Uh, the biggest threats I see, which I think are, are largely consistent, is that China's economic uh, influence in the region will end up undermining governance, uh, creating instability in the region. It will also be leveraged for political gains, which we're already seeing. And here I'm particularly worried that the U.S. has largely ceded the field over the last few years. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember in 2012 when Hillary Clinton became the first ever U.S. Secretary of State to attend the Pacific Islands Forum. A year before we had reopened uh, USAID offices in, in the Pacific, we were the number two provider of official development assistance throughout the region. By 2015, we were number six, number seven. You've got the, the low age tracker. I mean, we, we largely seeded the field on the economic front. Now we are finally re-engaging, but we need to make sure that it's far more sustained than it was the last time, because Pacific Islanders do not want to see us ride in on our horse once every five years, remember that they're there, and then forget again. Uh, the the you know, biggest, I think, both um, 
advantage and also threat that the U.S. faces is with the freely associated states. We have an enormous amount of uh, goodwill, of advantage in having three independent nations who have willingly signed compacts of free association that basically give us preferential access to their EEZs and their territories for military uses and prevent anybody else from using them. And we get it at a relatively low cost. It took way too long to get the Congress to approve the renewal of the compact with Palau. Now it's finally been done. Uh, we'll have them coming up for re renegotiation in 2023 for the Marshall Islands and uh, uh, Micronesia and in 2024 for Palau. We've already started the renegotiation process. This is great. We cannot take our eye off the ball. Um, these states, along with our three territories, are what make the U.S. a Pacific power. The, the most important thing, I think, is to make sure that we are engaged in the Pacific the way that they want to be engaged. This is not a region devoid of agency or devoid of regional architectures. The Pacific Islands Forum, among other institutions, has their own vision for what their security threats look like and how they want to partner. Uh, if you look at the Bowie Declaration released by the Pacific Islands Forum, it is quite sophisticated. They have rightly identified their two greatest security threats. They are climate change and IUU fishing. Neither the U.S. nor Australia can play a positive role in the first for the time being. Uh, that is just politics. And so we should be focusing on the latter. We have an awful lot of credibility on maritime domain awareness, maritime security assistance. Both states, along with New Zealand and the French, are investing heavily in building capacity. This is where uh, we are undoubtedly the good guy. And China, primarily, along with a few other distant water fishing states, are undoubtedly the bad guy. It can only redound to our benefit if we improve the ability of Pacific states to monitor their own waters. But we could be doing a lot better. Uh, it's not going to happen by giving them patrol boats and expensive air platforms and occasionally doing uh, OMSI patrols. That can be part of it, but we need to think a lot more about low-cost options, mainly remote sensing and satellite-based satellite technologies. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, while I tend to agree that the narrative about intentional Chinese debt traps is a bit overblown. Uh, I think it's hard to argue that China uses existing debt once it finds that a state is overleveraged for political gains. And so, um, for instance, I think Jonathan said earlier that the only two states who have accepted Chinese loans in the Pacific since 2016 are Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu are also the only two states in the Pacific who have publicly sided with China on the South China Sea. Um, the Cook Islands was demanding debt recapitalization earlier this year, agreed to join the Belt and Road Initiative at APEC when uh, Xi Jinping offered to, to forgive the debt. And so these are not huge things, but over time I do think you will see, as it does in Southeast Asia and South Asia, that China will seek to use economic levers, especially debt forgiveness or debt repackaging, to extract political concessions that mean very little to the recipient states and very much to Beijing. And I'll end there. Okay, thanks, Eric. Um, okay, so a couple of questions from me. Um, it's almost a year to the day, uh, perhaps a little longer, that Vice President Pence gave his famous Hudson speech where he laid out a US vision for the South Pacific and then jumped on the plane and went to APEC in Port Moresby in early November of 2018. <clears throat> One of the things, Jonathan, that, that I heard as a result of, of, of the APEC meeting was the success of President Xi. Um, he was everywhere. He gave time to every parla parliamentarian. Vice President Pence was hard to access. He had a bubble around him. Um, 
How important for many of these small Pacific islands has been that high-level Chinese engagement? So, you know, the thesis that you put forward before that China kind of stumbled into this South Pacific, there's not some, there wasn't some grand overarching strategy from Beijing, there was a lot of capital that needed to be investment, the South Pacific was seen as a place to do that. Um, but, yet, you know, contrary to that is, has been this courting we've seen, particularly of political elites in, this, in the Pacific Islands, the South Pacific in the last three years, do, uh, so, firstly, how important has that been? What is the political payback that Beijing's receiving from that? And has the United States, you spoke of 50 Australian ministerial visits, has the United States been neglectful, do you think, in, in, in its attention to the South Pacific, particularly in those last two or three years where it's really heated up in that political competition in that region? Yeah, look, that's a really, really good question. Um, I, was, I was in APEC at, uh, observing the whole thing, and, uh, and Xi, uh, yeah, he really overwhelmed with on this charm offensive um, I do not you know we always we say that we do this stuff well and China is really kind of um, too blunt and you know not they're not great diplomats they shoot themselves in the foot all the time right. on the foot all the time Xi did not do that he was so generous with his time I could not believe a PNG parliament when he was just being that the secure his secret service actually let the parliament mob him and he shook hands with everyone and he just was completely uh, you know, there was no time pressure. He talked to every single parliamentarian. It was really quite amazing. At the APEC leaders' dinner that night, he sat there yakking away with uh, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea after every le other leader had left. And this is not lost on the Pacific. You know, they, they recognise that the most valuable commodity of a leader of this, of this um, you know, of, of, of China's, uh, the most valuable commodity is time. Uh, and then it was in sh such sharp contrast to Pence, who, because of Secret Service, um, Demands. They even they they said that up and right up until before arrival, they said he was not even going to stay overnight in this you know third world country because of security concerns, and then he ended up staying overnight. Uh, and so you know they just completely undermined any goodwill they would, they could have built from that. Uh, and he, yeah, he walked around in a bubble, and the only time he could get a local person near him was for a prearranged photo op. And it was also so yeah, it was quite a sh um, sharp contrast. And the, and this is China, something China has been doing well for quite a while. This respect for equivalence. Uh, no matter what the imbalance of the of the size of countries, uh, really does pay in spades, uh, much more so than particularly when you have in contrast Australia, we where you know we give more than half of all of aid, aid to the Pacific region in any given year, but we don't. We've like in some countries like Vanuatu or Fiji, we've never had a bilateral guest of government visit from a prime, from Australian Prime Minister to these countries. It's just not worth their time, but. If this is an advantage, a comparative advantage that China has built over 10 years, well, the good news is it's an easy one to counter. You know, we can just start doing this as well, and Australia has shown that uh, you can catch up really quickly. The US has also um, stepped in here, I think, done a great job with the North Pacific, with the compact states. Right. They all, all the leaders came to, if, if you can't go there, bring them to you. All the leaders were very happy to come to DC to have face time with, with President Trump. I think that played really well with the North Pacific. Just, uh, I was wondering, just Jonathan, very quickly, if I could put you on the spot, can you just give us an overview here in Washington of who the top three or four aid donors are to the region, the 15, 14 countries of the region, and the dollar amounts of those, if you could, from the top of your head. I know, I know that I'm putting you on the spot there, but I just want to emphasise how uh, China is not the overwhelming donor, which is, uh, I guess, contrary to, to a lot of uh, popular understanding here. So I guess this is where you have check on delivery at the top of your speech, right? Um, but 
Uh, the, we do have the specific aid map tool that Low Institute has produced, which tracks all aid flows into the Pacific Islands region. The, the latest numbers we have for 2017 show that uh, Australia gave 45% of all aid to the region in 2017, New Zealand gave 9%, China gave 8%, the US gave about 8% as well. Uh, Total, total aid to the Pacific region is dominated, 80% uh, of total aid to the Pacific region is dominated by six, six donors. They are Australia, New Zealand, China, the United States, Japan, and the Asian Development Bank. So uh, yeah, China has not taken over. It, but the point I try to make in my presentations these days is that the China aid picture has done, China's, China aid has done its job. It got state and enterprises into the region. These state and enterprises have put down deep economic roots. They are now competing in commercial activity across the board. They are winning, they are winning more in government contracts and, contra and in other just pure commercial investment than they are relying on Exim Bank. Exim Bank did its job. So aid is, we shouldn't really be talking about aid anymore. We should be talking about what they're doing in the commercial space. Greg, uh, one for you. Um, so in the last month, the Solomon Islands and Kiribati have, have, have you know, uh, switched allegiance, if you will, from, from uh, Taiwan to China. Um, can you give us an overview of how that occurred, what the impact is, and who's next? Um, well, so how it occurred, this has been a long-running debate, especially in the Solomons. I'm not as familiar with what the parliamentary debates might have been in recent years in Kiribati. Um, Partially, it was, I think, elite capture, right? Getting wined and dined and brought to Beijing and signing MOUs. And, and partially, perhaps, it was the US and Taiwan, among others, taking for granted uh, that this wouldn't happen. Now, I, I will say, I think that the, some of the responses from the US side, um, you know, efforts in the Congress, for instance, to say that we're going to cut off support for these countries, this is wildly self-defeating. Um, you cannot punish a country for doing the same thing that we did 40 plus years ago, uh, and, nor does it make you look any better in the Pacific. So if you're trying to you know, uh, bolster your position, that's not the way to do it. I, Jonathan knows better than I do the domestic politics. I suspect that this might be reversible, at least in Kiribati. I mean, we've already seen repeated efforts to oust the uh, prime minister over the last two weeks that was blocked by extra legal means, the Supreme Court has weighed in, there's a good chance that the government falls when Parliament reconvenes and then they might well switch back to Taipei. The Solomons, I also suspect this to be a, at least a political football in the next election. Um, but it does tend to show that, um, you know, one of the things that really insulates the Pacific, as opposed to some other regions, including Southeast Asia, is that it is almost universally made up of democracies, perhaps flawed democracies or corrupt democracies, but democracies. And China has a pretty poor track record when it comes to democracies. Um, you know, you can capture elites, but those elites eventually have to face an election. And then their opponents use the fact that they're captured by Beijing against them. Um, and so any victories tend to be short-lived. Jonathan, uh, one more for you before we go to the audience. Um, one of the things I've been fascinated by has been uh, the upcoming independence elections in Bougainville. So, one of, from a from a grand strategic perspective, uh, you know, one of the uh, if you're into the sort of conspiratorial views is that wow, Papua New Guinea can be somewhat dissected. That's another vote that can go into Beijing's column potentially. A small developing country looks to Beijing after its independence vote. I believe the vote's in five days. Can you tell us what 
the outcomes of the, the polling is looking like. My understanding it's overwhelming yes for independence. Um, what are the implications for that? And what is the likelihood of Beijing seeking to court this new country, this new independent state of Bougainville? Uh, Another good question. So the Lowy Institute has produced um, a paper on, on this. So if you want to know the whole history about Bougainville, there, there is a 30-year history behind this that has led us to this, um, this impending vote of independence. There's a bit of nuance in the vote. The, so it's based on long-standing conflict between Bougain, the people in Bougainville and the people of Papua New Guinea about the, the royalty rights that behind a, a, one of the largest gold mines in the world that resides in Bougainville. And, uh, and how this, these revenues were shared. Now, the, um, the independent, there is some nuance around the referendum itself. There will be a referendum for independence, but the Bougainville Accords that just dictate this, this vote say that this is, it, it will be overwhelming, yes. I can guarantee, I, well, touch on, I can't 100% guarantee, but I can 99.9 .9 guarantee it's gonna be overwhelmingly for independence. But this leads us into a process of negotiation with the PNG government about what the process towards independence will look like. And then it is finally ratified, the final step is to be ratified by the PNG parliament. Now PNG parliament is very anxious that this will lead to a domino effect or a further unraveling. Uh, there are other islands that may, may feel like they're more viable as a state apart from PNG than as a part of PNG. So you might see this unraveling of the PNG state, which is a very, you know, 830 distinct cultural groups in PNG. This is not a homogenous society. So this is just the start of a new process. I don't think we're, going, we're not going to see a new UN voting nation emerge in December. Okay. Uh, but we have heard that China is very interested. We've heard that there have been offers put on the table on the ground. But what we don't know is, are those offers genuine? There are a lot of carpetbaggers in the Pacific who read the tea leaves of Beijing and think that they, and you know, then go out and try to, to act upon Beijing's behalf, but who are they actually representing? There are a lot of business interlocutors who say they represent someone. We don't actually know who they do represent. So, um, you know, it is one more front to be, very, to be anxious about, but as um, I think there's a lot more to play out in the Spokenville independence process before we get to that point of, of China making proper inroads into the country. Okay. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, one final question from me before we go to our, uh, to our audience. Um, this blue dot network, it kind of came out of the blue. Uh, I know some of myself and other colleagues here at CSIS who are very well informed folks and connected in around town uh, did a collective, um, I'm not sure what that is. Um, I've read it's a Michelin guide is how it's being billed uh, as to good governance, uh, good regulation around uh, investment. Can, can one of you two or both of you explain how you read it? Uh, is it, as some in the media have billed it, which I don't believe, some sort of US-led counter to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative? So exactly what is it when it talks about a Michelin guide? Um, how, is there going to be large investment funding towards it? Or is it merely setting a standard of guidelines for Pacific and South Pacific countries um, of how to look at uh, investment and infrastructure development? Uh, so maybe counter BRI is a strong word, but I will say that it falls within one of the three main pillars of the Belt and Road, or of the, the Free and Open Indo-Pacific strategy, which is very clearly to provide alternatives to the Belt and Road. That doesn't necessarily mean telling countries don't take Belt and Road uh, funding, but what we've clearly seen is what, when there are viable alternatives, whether they are from multilateral development banks, the US, Japan, whatever, even if you don't win the contract, the Chinese tend to come in with a better offer.
um, all of a sudden, you know, loan rates are much better and, and costs drop and they'll do the environmental impact assessments, et cetera. So I think part of this falls into that bucket, right? It is creating a set of standards jointly agreed to by the U.S., Australia, and Japan, um, by which states can judge the quality of Chinese offers. Some states, I think, will, be, will welcome that. Some states might consider that undue interference. It is part of a larger strategy that includes things like the BUILD Act, uh, with attempts to increase U.S. Uh, development assistance in the region, the electrification project in PNG, um, this uh, State Department-led effort to basically get State Department lawyers to go help you look at your contract, which I understand was of some use in Myanmar, for instance. We can have a whole different debate about whether or not that is enough for an effective strategy, but it is at least couched within, I think, a broader strategy. Okay, Jonathan looks happy with that response from his colleague. Um, okay, let's open it up to the audience. Interesting questions, uh, uh, as, as much as we want, as little as we want. We've got 15 minutes, so let's get through it, sir. Quick, microphone will come down. And just a reminder, if we could uh, keep our microphone uh, just away, <laughs> away so, I can, so we can hear what you've got to say, sir. Yeah, my question is that, uh, do you think the instability uh, the, in the Pacific Island countries caused by the ecological catastrophe and the global warming. Uh, this kind of instability will uh, become the uh, excuse or opportunity for the uh, Chinese military force to uh, uh, practice and uh, uh, exist in in the Pacific Island region, such as what uh, what happened, for example, what happened in the uh, uh, Somalia when the instability appears. Uh, Chinese government uh, uh, and their military used uh, the instability as an excuse to uh, send the uh, naval force or, uh, escorting. Do you think that, that kind of possibility will happen in the Pacific Island? Okay, so question as, uh, as, as, as I've, uh, I've got it is, uh, what are the conditions for uh, potential state failure? Uh, and how can how can uh, how can the United States, Japan, Australia, New Zealand counter any uh, state failure, things like global warming and so on, which would perhaps allow a third country like China to come in? Is that correct, sir? Yep. Thank you. Uh, why don't we go to Jonathan and Greg quickly, please? Uh, yeah. So the. The spread of Chinese diaspora into the Pacific region has not been all upside for the Pacific. There is a lot of anxiety and frustration that has been um, that, that that comes with it. There's a lot of anxiety about losing formal sector employment opportunities to the, to Chinese. Uh, so there's a lot of frustration in the Pacific communities about this new wave of Chinese people who are not do not the perception is they're not here to integrate with society. They're here to extract from society. So anytime they're in the Pacific, this is exceptionally predictable. Uh, Any time that there is a breakdown in law and order, uh, and so riots or protests of any, any kind, the Chinese community will be the ones that are targeted. They're an exceptionally vulnerable community in the Pacific. They do not get a lot of consular support from the Chinese state. And so uh, this has happened, we've seen this happen play out in the last 15 years in Honiara, in Bougainville, in Tonga, uh, it, in, in Port Moresby. Um, what is the tipping point in which, if, if, if unrest gets to such a degree that Chinese communities are targeted uh, with violence, uh, that China decides it has to, a more muscular China decides it has to intervene in these countries? This is something I know Australia is anxious about uh, because this is, and in the past I've used civilian assets, so chartering planes, et cetera, to, to get 
Chinese civilians out, this especially the case in Tonga in 2006. But what if they decide to use military assets in the future, like that, like they have done in Africa, to evacuate citizens? What happens when they will they will, will that presence then leave again? Uh, will they ask for permission before going in? Uh, it's a particular it's a particular concern. Now, I think Australia would be very quick to jump in and try and offer as much support as possible. This is something we can work. No one wants to see people being um, targeted by, uh, for racial violence. Uh, but also, I, I think it's, anyway, it, it is a, an area of particular concern for the future. Uh, hello, I'm Chris Rodman, Research Fellow at Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA. Um, Japan's recent activities in the Pacific Islands show a willingness to step up their aid programs significantly, and those, those programs seem to line up well with the priorities outlined in the BOE Declaration, such as health and water security uh, and clean energy. But do you think there are any particular areas where Japan has a competitive or a comparative advantage and, and maybe should focus their aid efforts? Okay, great question. So Japan stepping up in, in, this, in the Pacific Islands, and what specific capabilities can Japan bring? Great. Um, I mean, I think the biggest uh, gap right now in our partner support is on climate change adaptation. We are doing work on mitigation and, and adaptation, but it doesn't fly very well in the Pacific when both the U.S. and Australia go in and say, well, we'll help you you know, build a retaining wall, but we're not going to agree on why the waters are rising in the first place. So Japan has much more credibility on this issue than anything else. Um, I'll also say, so I think Japan does a lot of great work in the Pacific, and the ch a challenge for Japan is they, you know, they operate behind the scenes. They're very, you know, uh, quiet about what they actually are achieving, um, whereas China cuts a ribbon on the front page of every newspaper as soon, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the project or if the project's already been, the ribbon's been cut three times on it. Um, they're all about the splash. So uh, Japan does some great work in um, really thankless stuff like Port Moresby um, sewerage works, for example. Um, you know, JBIC and JICA are very professional organisations and they should, I think, um, they do do great quality infrastructure. And so if they can just sell that story more in the region, it, it takes them out of their comfort zone. I think that's a good starting point, and just doing more of the same. Um, you know, there's, they are a smaller player in the region. They can, can continue to grow. I think the understatement of the day is uh, uh, thankless work on sewerage. Um, yes, we'll take the naval officer at the back. Hello, sir. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Jonathan Siobhan, I'm with the uh, Navy's OpNav staff and the Pentagon China branch. Um, got a question for... Um, Mr. Buchanan and Mr. Pryker, is that correct? Yes, sir. Um, if you ask, the, I think the average Navy, U.S. Navy sailor or Marine, they'd say Australia is at the top of the list of places they want to go. So my question to you is, what is the other side? How do, how do Aussies these days feel about an increased U.S. presence? Uh, there's talk of a, of a potential base, you know, that is being bandied about. What is y'all's uh, answer to, the, to those questions? Yeah, I... Um, all right, uh, Jonathan, do you want to go first and I'll, ha I'll have a crack at it? Um, I think there's bipartisan consensus that the US alliance is still the backbone of Australia's uh, security settings. So, you know, there's, there's no, uh, our white paper of both defence and foreign policy make, reaffirm that. Uh, so there's a lot of goodwill with, the, with regards to the, our relationship with, with the US. I think the marine base in uh, in in Darwin or just outside of Darwin in North Australia, I think you know, people are by and large pretty positive about. 
and, and expanding that cap the capabilities of that base, I think there, there's, the government's also open to discussion. We are caught in a difficult, uh, it's just we're in this uncomfortable sit middle ground between a US and China where China is our major trading partner and, and, and a major economic partner, whereas the US is our, our security bedrock. And we do have to navigate and balance through the middle there, but um, it's never going to be, it's not, it's messy, it's not going to be easy, but I think we, we've made it pretty clear where, where our um, alliances, where, where our loyalties are and, um, and how, we're, how we're going to navigate through that middle. Yeah, I think, the, I think that's right. I mean, polling, polling strongly in Australia remains very much in supportive of the United States, particularly as this China-US competition enters a values phase. Uh, as we, um, the second point is, you know, I think there has been a downturn for support in the Trump administration. I don't think that that's, that, that, that that's just a fact, and Lowy's polling yep. is supportive of that. Um, uh, <clears throat> but yes, I mean, look, Australia ultimately does not want to have to choose between the United States and China. And no matter where you go in the region, that is the number one thing you, you, you will hear, whether it's in Seoul or Sydney or anywhere in between. Um, but broadly supportive, the United States remains the bedrock of Australian security and Australian polling uh, indicates that. Uh, and I'm sure Australian sailors enjoy going to Pearl Harbour and San Diego as well. Uh, our, uh, our English friend. Hi, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, just listening, and my, my, think, my thoughts are going to next year with the uh, US election. And obviously Obama's pivot to Asia from the previous administration and the hardening of relations with, uh, or should we say more aggressive tactics with the current administration, but perhaps not encouraging as much collaboration with allies in the most favourable way. So I'd be interested to hear from an Australian, Austra American, whatever perspective on how you think that could change the uh, dynamics in the South Pacific region after the 2020 election. Okay, so uh, no matter who wins 2020, what will US uh, what will US policy towards the South Pacific region look like? Yep, and how would that be taken? Okay, uh, let's go, Greg, and then jo and then we'll have Jonathan's point of view. Uh, well, so since you said how will policy change, I assume you mean if if one of the Democrats wins, because um, I think we know a lot, you know, what policy looks like for the next four years, except maybe even more messy if it goes the other way. Uh, Look, I think everybody uh, around town now understands that the sense that China is a strategic competitor is bipartisan, has um, strong support on both sides of the aisles up on the hill. It's uh, hard to see any of the leading candidates pull back from that significantly. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. The biggest change would likely be a more strategic approach to partners and allies. Um, I don't see that acting now the most in, in the Pacific, where I think we're actually coordinating pretty well because it is largely a backwater, right? The White House is not paying attention, for the most part, to the Pacific. Where it'll have more impact is in Southeast and Northeast Asia, where presumably the pressure will come off of allies at least significantly, and you'll see a much more strategic approach to ASEAN, for instance, which could, combined with a continued, more hard-nosed approach to China, could be far more effective. So on, on the, sorry, just speaking real quick. On the on the Pacific, um, you know, the there is a lot of trust in this relationship here. Australia does take the lead in a lot of parts of the Pacific, and the U.S. Uh, trusts Australia enough to do that. Australia it, taking care of the Pacific region uh, helps to reinforce to the U.S. that we are a responsible ally. 
but for Australia, I mean, the Pacific does not factor into our bilateral relationship with the US at the moment. We are extremely anxious that, the, that this administration will, I'm not going to speak for, on behalf of speaking from the perspective of, the low, of my job at the Low Institute, not on behalf of the government, we're very anxious that this administration will put an ask on to Australia uh, that we'll have to refuse. And so we're very anxious to maintain a good relationship, and I think by, by and large we have to date. Uh, Scott Morrison was uh, wined and dined as a guest of government uh, at a state dinner at the White House quite recently. And so we have a lot of goodwill in the relationship, but we're just very anxious that they're going to ask us to jump into the, the trade war or some other dispute uh, where we have to make some really tough decisions. And so far, we've had to avoid those decisions. Okay, yep, the pitfalls of alliance management. Uh, one more question, sir, Dan here. We'll take that question before we wrap the panel up. Hi, thanks. I'm Mike Fonte. I work for the Democratic Progressive Party here in town. I wonder what Taiwan's role might be in some of the sustainable development processes uh, maybe going together with Japan and the BUILD Act, is there real room for Taiwan's efforts there? Thank you. question is, Taiwan's role in the Pacific Islands, South Pacific, will go to Greg and then I'll go to Jonathan, then we'll shut, uh, shut up the conversation. I see my time. See <laughs> his time, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I know Taiwan would like to play as much of an active role with, uh, with Western partners like Australia and the US as, as possible. Uh, it's a tricky one with Australia because we, we also have to manage the relationship with China. Uh, and then in the Pacific region, well, Taiwan's influence has really uh, declined in recent months with the swaps of Kiribati and Solomon Islands uh, over to, to China. The, the combined population of the four remaining allies that Taiwan has in the Pacific region is under 100,000. Uh, two of those in the North Pacific I don't think see swapping anytime soon because of uh, renewed US vigilance in the North Pacific compact states. Nauru and Tuvalu, well, these countries are both about 11,000 people in size, so personality politics plays an exceptionally large role. So it's very unpredictable uh, how, they, how they may go. Um, but even if they do swap, I think, again, because of their relative size, they're much less of a prize for, for China. I mean, China is very proactively trying to get these countries to swap, uh, to mount, put more pressure on Taiwan ahead of the elections early next year. But uh, whether or not that's actually an effective strategy, I think it's actually having the opposite effect. It's, it's um, solidifying support for the incumbent government rather than pushing support away. So yeah, for Taiwan, I think they, they are going to be further marginalised in the region, and they already have been. But yeah, we may even see a swap back in Kiribati. Let's uh, wait and see as the vote and reconfidence plays out. Station, great. I, I would just jump in, not necessarily on aid, but on Taiwan's role at large and the, the kind of dangers facing um, that role. IUU is a problem for Taiwan. Uh, not counting those states who have flags of convenience to Vanuatu, Taiwan has the second largest distant water fishing fleet in the Pacific. It's hard to know how much of that happens unreported or unregulated, but we see evidence of significant transshipment. And so as IUU fishing becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger part of what the Pacific Islands worry about, of course they are going to see the Chinese as a problematic actor. They are also likely to see Taiwan as a problematic actor. Well, on that, Greg, thank you. Thank you, sir, for your question on Taiwan. Always interesting to hear, uh, to hear the, the Taiwan angle. Um, so on behalf of CSIS and behalf of our friends at uh, JWO, thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you for allowing us to have the panel. Uh, and thank you for listening to, uh, to something that uh, is widely underreported here, which is the issue of uh, South Pacific and the Pacific Islands. So thank you to Jonathan for coming all the way from Sydney. Thanks, Greg, for coming all the way down from the eighth floor of here at CSIS. Uh, and thank you all for being here. Thanks.
tour from the island chain uh, in the north all the way down to the South Pacific, and now this uh, last panel um, has a heavy burden, which is trying to um, organize what we've heard into ideas for action um, and strategy and coordination. Um, the title of the panel is Implications for Regional Policy Coordination. Um, and we have uh, two superstars to help us do that. Um, we'll hear first from Atsuko Kanehara to my immediate left, uh, who is a professor at Sophia University's uh, Faculty of Law in the Department of International Legal Studies. Um, Sophia is Georgetown University's sister school. Um, she's a member of the governing board of the IMO International Maritime Law Institute. Um, she works as a counselor of advisory counsel for the national headquarters for the ocean, ocean policy of Japan, which Prime Minister Abe established. She's one of, I think, about eight uh, senior uh, advisors in that organization and has been involved in multiple um, international legal cases uh, flowing from the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea um, and has published extensively. So she'll talk about um, uh, how we should view this um, challenge to the maritime domain, to the first island chain, uh, from the perspective of international law. Um, it's very interesting, we don't tend to have that perspective as much in these discussions, and um, there are a lot of implications. And then we'll turn for, I guess, more of a political military uh, set of uh, thoughts to Commander Jeff Benson, uh, who's a military fellow here at CSIS, uh, and uh, previously served as executive officer and then commanding officer of the destroyer USS Statham which was deployed uh, in uh, Yokosuka um, from 2015-19 when he served on board. Um, he's worked for members of Congress. He's worked in the office of the Secretary of Commerce, OSD, um, and uh, brings a both operational and strategic, and I gather from congressional time, political uh, view on what is happening. And I will say it for him, he speaks for himself, not the US Navy. Um, uh, and although we're proud to have him speak for CSIS. Um, for the year he's with us. So why don't we start with uh, Kanehara-sensei, and then we'll turn to Jeff. Thank you, Mike, for your very kind introduction of me. Uh, it is a great honor for me uh, to have the opportunity to make a brief presentation on this occasion. I would like to talk about two points. First, I will explain what wrong China is doing from a perspective of international law, which is my field. Second, I will consider the possible way to combat with China from a Chinese perspective. It is quite frequently said China cannot unilaterally change the international law by forcible means. We can find three elements here. First, unilateral. Second, international law. And third, forcible means. First, Regarding unilateralism, China has unilaterally claimed its historical right over extravagantly wide sea areas encircled by the so-called Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea. In principle, international law is created based upon agreements of sovereign states. Sovereign states are not allowed to unilaterally create international law there are, however, some cases in which international law allows sovereign states to act unilaterally. The typical example is as follows. Coastal states are allowed to unilaterally establish the limits of their jurisdictional sea areas, such as territorial seas, exclusive economic zones, and the continental shelf. Nonetheless, 
I have to immediately add that in order to obtain validity with respect to other states, the limit unilaterally set by coastal states should be in accordance with the relevant international law rules. In the worldwidely famous case, namely the South China Sea case, the arbitral tribunal definitely denied the validity of the Chinese historic rights under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. UNCLOS is the most important treaty on the law of the sea. The unilateral claim by China is totally reproachable, therefore wrong. The second element to criticize China is it acts contrary to international law. As I already mentioned, the most important international law to currently regulate maritime issues is UNCLOS. China's claim of historic rights is totally contrary to UNCLOS and thus wrong. Third, international law prohibits both the use of force and the posing threats by force. Let's concretely look at China's acts, both in the South China Sea and East China Sea. It has frequently dispatched its coast guard vessels to the territorial seas of neighboring states. This is for the purpose of overtly demonstrating China's sovereignty over those sea areas. Chinese fishing boats have also come to the territorial seas of neighboring states, and in some cases with escort by China's Coast Guard vessels. The Chinese fishermen suddenly become militias, private soldiers. Even China's military vessels also enter territorial seas of other countries, including Japan. In reality, as a matter of fact, nobody denies that these Chinese strategies of making use of its Coast Guard vessels and fishermen as militias and even its military vessels have posed serious threat on the neighboring states. The tense situations produced by China have been maintained more than a decade in the East China Sea and the South China Sea as well. I can safely say that those Chinese strategies are regarded as use of forcible measures. This is so in considering the actual threats posed by China on Japan and South Asian countries, and thus, the Chinese acts that were explained now are no doubt reproachable and therefore wrong. Thus far, we have reached to the common understanding as to the precise meaning of what wrong China is doing. Then, based upon this common understanding, next, I will consider possible ways to combat with China from a Japanese perspective. How to make China obey international law? In international society, sovereign states exist with equality to and independence from each other. There are no authorities that are above the sovereign states. As a result of this, 
in international society, no compulsory enforcement measures can be taken to maintain the effectiveness of international law. In this sense, international law critically lacks its teeth. Under this reality of international law and international society, with respect to the ways to combat with Chinese wrongdoings, two points may be emphasized. First, with regard to China in the East China Sea, Japan must react without escalating the tense situation between the two countries. The Japan Coast Guard, rather than the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force, copes with the Chinese vessels approaching and entering Japanese territorial sea. This has, this has become almost a permanent situation these years in Japanese territorial sea surrounding the Senkaku Islands. China has claimed its sovereignty over them, and it tried to overtly demonstrate its sovereignty by even using the forcible measures in the sense explained before. The Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force is already ready for cooperation with the Japan Coast Guard, but Japan, with the highest prudence, have tried to prevent the tense situation from growing to a military situation. This policy of non-escalation is keen for Japan to avoid forcible measures as much as possible. Second, Japan has been taking advantage of interplay of bilateral, regional, and multilateral dimensions. I said interplay as Japan ex expects the synergy to be produced by bilateral, regional, and multilateral measures. In the regional level, for instance, Japan is expecting a code of conduct to be established by ASEAN countries. The code of conduct needs to be effective, needs to be effective enough to make China comply with international law. In the worldwide level, Japan's policy of the rule of law has been sufficiently well recognized. It strongly urges other states to take the same stance as that of Japan toward China in order to build a strong circle and circle of a legal world in which China can find no escapes. In respect to the freedom of navigation, the US and Japan with other countries have cooperated to maintain the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea where China claims its historic rights over outrageous wide sea areas. These ways do not have instant result. Without a strong and solid attitude for a certain amount of time, it is difficult to reach our desired outcome. Nonetheless, as responsible players that abide by international law, Japan and other cooperating countries should solidly continue the combating measures with regard to China in a very patient manner. This is the end of my brief remarks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sensei. Jeff? 
All right, thank you, Mike. As any good uh, DOD employee, I'll start out with that my views do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Navy, U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. All right, that part's done. So we'll talk about two uh, areas today. My first is I'm going to try to answer the question or bring to some light the maritime ambition of China in the first island chain and beyond, and then try to take what we've heard today with the uh, East China Sea, South China Sea, and Pacific and offer some comments. China is the world's second most capable Navy. They're the world leader in shipbuilding. They have the world's largest fishing industry, and they have the world's largest number of Coast Guard vessels. So their maritime ambition is one with maritime power. It's my belief that they're, what they lack now is naval supremacy. Global, China has a global naval, naval force, which in 2008, I believe, was the birth of the, the global force with the Gulf of Aden deployments. They've de developed logistics bases in Djibouti and other places. They've deployed submarines to India. These are indicators of a global naval force. In addition, if you look at one key indicator, they're replenishment ships. The more they build replenishment ships, the more global they will become. The key for the United States Navy, as well as uh, partners as allies, is, and we, we've alluded today, is working together in the East China Sea and the South China Sea and the Pacifics, and to have the PLAN and China follow international order. With the first island chain, um, their Chinese Navy's presence is ubiquitous. What they operate is they operate in a zone defense and they shift to a man-to-man -man defense. It's been well documented that the Chinese Navy uh, trail uh, U.S. Navy vessels. Um, they follow maritime order. However, not all the time do they follow international order in the sense that, um, you know, it's, it's their rules uh, out there. Second, the uh, military militia. Um, while I understand the gray zone tactic uh, that they're employing, um, I think there's a lot of uh, overhype, even myself. I've written about the Chinese Coast Guard and military militia and their role in the first island chain, um, but I think there's a lot of overhype uh, with that. Uh, most of this military militia, uh, you know, the, the masters of, the, of these ships uh, do not have degrees from, you know, Harvard or MIT. Uh, they're, they're not the most uh, intelligent when it comes to applying rules of the road and international law. Um, from a naval war context, uh, you know, we've operated with DAOs in the Gulf of Aden uh, um, just as much as we work with the military militia. The third is uh, the PLAN um, had significant, or in general, the Chinese uh, military had significant reform in 2015. Uh, this reform, uh, especially with the transition of Admiral uh, Wu Xingli, who is the uh, chief of the naval operations, is now Vice Admiral Shen, uh, who doesn't you know, share the same clout as uh, I don't think as Admiral Wu Xingli did. Um, Admiral Wu Xingling was there for uh, you know the South Sea Fleet and then rose to the highest rank. And, and since then, uh, the climate has changed between the two uh, in the sense of our uh, engagement. Also, the PLAN, uh, while they do have professional bridge-to-bridge -bridge communications, um, you know, they do uh, what they want to uh, out at sea. You know, in 2014, we established the Western Pacific Naval Symposium, uh, the uh, Code for Unplanned Encounters at Sea. 
the whole goal of that was twofold, one for transparency and one for safety. The PLAN do use cues, but it's only uh, when we first initiate. I think maybe potentially looking at um, and having a discussion on the value of cues um, to avoid miscalculation is imperative. Looking ahead, I, I think we need to take more risk um, as Chinese continues to uh, expand uh, throughout the first island chain and beyond. Um, you know, there's some options that we can uh, look at, whether it's a, a destroyer or a P-8 flying near uh, fishing vessels or military militia, letting them know our presence is there, or potentially even uh, positioning our LCS further in the Pacific. The Chinese Navy uh, ambition is that they test the waters, they wait for our response, um, and they're pushing the boundaries, which leads to kind of the question with the Chinese maritime uh, while we're here today is, where are their boundaries? Um, how far will they go? Looking today, we've looked at uh, three geographical areas, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and the Pacific. Um, there was discussion earlier on the East China Sea about Russia and China. Uh, I think it's real important to, to note that in April of this year, uh, Chinese held their uh, 70th anniversary of the Chinese Navy, and uh, Russia played a big part of that. They've also, in the last several years, have been a part of several naval exercises uh, working together uh, throughout the region. Um, there was a little comment about, uh, um, Mike, you talked about a little bit of Operation Tomodachi. While this wasn't in a, a denied environment, um, you know, I was part of that uh, operation back in 2010. And I will say that the Japanese alliance and the communications and the uh, ability to work with our, our, our allies, specifically Japan, was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, naval exercises are essential to you know, conducting operations at sea. On the South China Sea, uh, you know, when you look at uh, everything that uh, Greg and CSIS have, have, have done here, um, I'm kind of left to, you know, what else can China do? I mean, I think really the only thing, you know, Scarborough Reef is maybe the only thing they could potentially develop, but we would have to have a response to that. Um, I think going forward, um, the biggest thing in the South China Sea is maritime domain awareness. Uh, 2015, I wrote an article on the, uh, the need for an international maritime operations center, one that's uh, with our allies and partners. I think this is essential as we go forward to manage uh, the South China Sea. Kind of want to drop anchor on, on one point, um, talking a little bit about the East China, South China Sea. A lot of people don't realize, and I think it's important for policymakers to understand, that the environment in the South China Sea and East China Sea are very different. And the, the number of shipping, the acoustics that are in, the, in these areas um, make it from a, a naval perspective very, very difficult. For example, in the East China Sea uh, near the coast, I mean, you're looking at only 300 feet of water. Um, there's not a whole lot uh, you can do. You know, obviously, that's why the fishing are there. But this is real important if you're operating submarines or you're operating within this vicinity to understand the, the environment. Also, the shipping density is another characteristic. Um, having gone through the Taiwan Strait, uh, you know, especially at the entry points, the maritime traffic is pretty significant. 
The other thing with the South China Sea that uh, wasn't touched on today is there some of the naval exercises that are conducted. Uh, we've been doing it for you know more than some more than 30 years, but the cooperation of float readiness and training plays a big part in the Southeast Asia. Um, from my knowledge, I have not seen much of the Chinese in this this realm, and that's where we need to continue. And I'll wrap up with the uh, Pacific, uh, the Blue Pacific. Commons, is, as I call it, if you haven't seen uh, the report by RAND uh, that was released in August, they have a great graphic, um, uh, I believe by the State Department, that shows the whole United States of America overlaid of this region just to show how large uh, the Blue Pacific Commons is. The Pacific Island form uh, you know, states it's the Blue Pacific Continent, but I think that Blue Pacific Commons shows the, uh, the importance of our, our work in that region. And I think I'll just uh, end on, on, on one note. Um, probably the biggest surprise in the Pacific, and I think something that uh, we need to continue, is, is that uh, China has been working on this since 2006. Um, they have been working in this region, uh, both from an economic and uh, diplomatic point. And I think it's only a matter of time that uh, we may see uh, maybe Chinese operating within with that area due to fishing and resources. With that, I'll conclude. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, let me start with you, uh, Kanehara-sensei. Um, several times you noted that China's uh, behavior under international law is reproachable. That reproachable is a term I gather under international law. Um, it's, it sounds, I'm glad my wife doesn't know that term. It's, it's, very, um, it's very decisive and clear. But, but the reality is that um, even after the um, arbitral uh, tribunal's decision in July 2016 that China's claims were not based on anything in international law, uh, Beijing blew right past that, ignored it. Um, so uh, the question for you is what good is international law if China's ignoring it? Thank you very much for your question. And it is true that China has been always um, rule breaker. And uh, regarding uh, the tribunal's decision um, given in 2016, uh, the 12th of July, uh, China regarded that decision as null and void. So it's totally disregarded. But I can give you one typical example of uh, China uh, the, to uh, rely on international law. In that sense, international law, even for China, is working. Uh, as you know all, uh, from the beginning to the end of the tribunal's procedure, China was totally absent. But China issued uh, the extra extravagant volume of statement national statement to criticize the tribunal's procedure and also to explain Chinese uh, position concerning its historic rights. But always it said that Chinese historic rights are based upon customary international law. In that sense, even China needs legal justification based upon public international law. So in that sense, I think, International law is working, even on China. That is a typical example. So that is evidence. The enormous volume of, um, of, uh, of legal briefs that the Chinese have put out is evidence that they pay attention to that. And maybe over time, Greg Poling points out that the US um, uh, lost a decision to Nicaragua and over, what, a decade, we, we kind of defied it. And eventually, the weight of opinion became such that we had to make adjustments. And I gather also international law 
helps in terms of um, aligning other players. I think the, the way that Beijing defied uh, the tribunal's decision and blocked consensus in ASEAN, but also blocked consensus in the EU, woke up Europe and to some extent woke up ASEAN. So for countries that care about international law, setting up those roadblocks, even if China drives through them, has some uh, uh, cost imposition effect because countries then realize what's at stake. Um, I don't know if you can draw a direct line, but I think that's part of why you started seeing a tougher approach in the declaratory policy of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and even to some extent ASEAN. Jeff, um, uh, you said China lacks only at this point uh, naval supremacy. They've developed uh, blue water naval capabilities, uh, the resupply ships to operate to their base in Djibouti. Um, I'm wondering what you think uh, th uh, that means. So, um, you know, there's this argument that we should be thinking about offshore denial to China, that, that once, look, the PLA gets, has a big mission over half of China's um, hydrocarbons come by sea from the Middle East through sea lanes that right now are dominated by the Indian Navy, the Royal Australian Navy, the US Navy, and the MSDF. So the idea is that fine, China's got blue water naval interests, they're never gonna be able to compete with us in undersea. Is there a game in which we can kind of uh, uh, compensate for our loss of supremacy within the first island chain uh, by putting at risk uh, Chinese interests beyond the first island chain? Um, that's sort of the first question. How do we look at China's blue water naval requirements in terms of our ability to shape Chinese decisions, deter China, push China towards more cooperation? Second, a related question is, within the first island chain, um, should we be worried about a shift uh, over the coming years from what is currently a contested environment towards uh, an environment where China does, within the First Island Chain, enjoy the kind of naval domination that gives huge advantages with undersea warfare in particular. In other words, what our Philippine friends always used to warn us is China will create the South China Sea as a submarine bastion. Um, is that something that worries you? Okay, I'll start off with the, um, you know, look at the, the blue water requirements. And you know, when you first started, I went back to a conversation I had with a PLA and officer, uh, and one of the first then things he told me is, hey, I, we want to be like you. Uh, and then he started talking about the uh, TNT movie or, you know, series, uh, The Last Ship, um, to, my, to my surprise, which I, I haven't watched much of it. But, but the reason why I, I point that out on the requirements is I, I truly believe they, they, they want to be like us. I mean, they, they want to have a Navy like us and have that naval supremacy. Um, it's the only thing that I, I think that they're, they're missing, um, you know, if you look at it because of all the other maritime, you know, power that they have. Um, it'll be really interesting, I think, you know, everyone looks at the, the carrier development. Um, you know, how they evolve that, I think, uh, is an indicator. I mean, they're, they're such a young age when it comes to carrier um, operations that, that I think that'll be an indicator of what requirements or what changes they make. If for some reason they stop, you know, building what six that I think has been, been quoted, if they change that, then I think that shows a difference maybe in, in their thought of, of, of where they're going. Um, within the first uh, island chain, the shift to contested environment uh, submarine, you know, uh, 
in anti-submarine warfare, you know, uh, having deep water is essential. And, you know, the East China Sea is specifically, you know, as you get closer to the coastline and in the South China Sea is not good for, uh, hunt, you know, hunting subs. It's, it's difficult. It's not that you can't. It's just the, the, the bathymetry and, and, and the water column is, is very difficult. And so, um, you know, I think that's what makes the South China Sea difficult from a naval warfare perspective is that, you know, you've got all these shipping coming, you know, obviously it's very, you know where it is. I mean, it, it comes through um, going down to, towards Singapore and the Strait of Malacca, um, but, you know, everything out of that, um, uh, it, it, would, it would not be a lot of fun. I guess that's the bottom line. If, if, it was, if, there, was, if there was submarine, uh, um, I mean, look at the Jonas McCain uh, issue back in, I believe, uh, 2000. Eight, uh, when they had the Shang submarine and the Tota raid, you know, hit it. Um, you know, that was in the South China Sea, and so it's a very difficult uh, maritime environment. Thanks. And so the real estate matters. If you can dominate that real estate, it's pretty significant. Absolutely, but uh, you know, you can also manipulate it too. I mean, so I, I think that's an important uh, characteristic to look for. Now, the, you know, we've talked about the undersea. The atmospherics are also very different in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And any good naval warfare uh, tactician will tell you that the environment matters, and understanding that um, can be the dif you know, difference between winning and losing. And Jeff, say something if you could about the archipelagic nature of the land features we're talking about, if I can ask a sailor to do that. Um, uh, you know, we faced uh, a, a threat, a, a significant threat from the Soviets in the late 70s, early 1980s. Um, by the late 1970s, the Soviets were sending boomers to Pearl Harbor and popping up, and then they were making a mad dash at San Diego, and we were having trouble keeping up with them in the post-Vietnam drawdown. Um, you know, the Navy, uh, and eventually the Reagan administration used the Japanese archipelago to our advantage to bottle up the Soviet boomers in the Sea of Okhotsk, and by the mid-'80s, the Soviets weren't coming out. Um, so that archipelagic um, geography, particularly with Japan, extremely powerful high-tech country and military right there, and Taiwan, um, could be to our advantage, and say a little bit about how you think about about that. It's you know the, the PLA is a very different problem than the Soviets. It's it's in many many ways. Of course, capacity is much larger, but we're also economically interdependent. So it's there are huge differences, but the geography is the same. I think came to the fruition that you know obviously coming back from Japan and being here now. I think that you know if you'd asked me several years ago, what's the most important national security? Uh, you know, interest for the United States national interest, um, I would have told you, you know, the South China Sea. I truly believe our, the United States national security interest is in the Pacific. And the islands that are around there are the most important national treasure that we have and that uh, we have fought really hard for. Um, so to answer your question, yes, the archipelagic is really important. You know, having um, sensors that uh, can uh, build that mo maritime domain awareness and let us know what our potential adversaries, you know, are doing or not doing is important. Uh, about, I guess, four, four or five years ago, you know, I, I wrote an article uh, specifically talking about the Chinese Navy and their submarines. And I predicted it then by 2020 that we'd have one off the coast of, of 
of the United States. Now, obviously, um, to our knowledge, they have not done that. Um, however, I don't think it's within their reach. If you look at the, the Gen class uh, submarine, as well as uh, some of their the diesels that have gone to the Gulf of Aden on 90-day patrols, which is in, in a public forum, um, they have the capacity to do it. I think it's just a matter of time whether they, they execute that. So, um, Atsuko, last question for you, and then we'll take one or two from the audience. If you could have five minutes with President Trump, um, and you could ask him to do one thing in terms of international law to deal with this problem that we're talking about, what would it be? Would it be ratify UNCLOS? Would it be show up at the East Asia Summit? When you look at the law and diplomacy, there's a lot of stuff we're not doing right now, um, but I've worked in the White House for five years. Presidential time's important. Executive time apparently is important. Um, so what's the one thing, how, would, how should the U.S. think about prioritizing our um, legal, international legal diplomatic component of the strategy? It's probably the weakest part of our strategy. Where would you say we should do the most effort? I think uh, the, the most important thing is to make a strong legal circle by um, other states in the world and from which uh, China uh, can never, uh, cannot uh, escape. So for that purpose, uh, the regional, bilateral, regional, and multilateral measures should be taken. So it is not an instant uh, method uh, to have an instant result. Uh, it takes much time, but uh, to uh, enclose China inside the legal world, uh, it is very important. And uh, the, for example, the in regional issue in the South China Sea, uh, the code of conduct has been uh, dis uh, discussed and argued uh, in among the ASEAN countries. So now. I expect that a code of conduct, uh, at least to respect the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, will be established. And, uh, and also, the, in worldwidely, uh, many countries, including Japan, uh, tried to uh, take measures uh, to utter uh, the rule of law. So by doing this, uh, they can make a legal circle from which China cannot escape. And so that is the, uh, my, uh, and my understanding and my judgment, uh, what, we sh what we should do uh, from now on and uh, continuously with uh, strong patience. So, so diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy on multiple fronts, yeah. on multiple fronts, multilateral, international law. Um, uh, we have diplomats who can do that. We've, we've learned that this, this week. Um, I'll open it up for a few questions before we finish, if anyone would like. Um, and I'll try to call on someone I've not called on. Um, the young lady with a uh, scarf. Yeah, Maya. Hi, thank you for um, talking today. Um, my name is Maya. I'm in the Asian Studies program in Georgetown SFS. I'm a Professor Green student. So my question kind of follow up with what you've been talking about. For the regional institution in Asia, like in Southeast Asia, like ASEAN is consensus-based. So basically it's very ineffective, even like after the arbitration case. So is there any way we can change that or like empower the Southeast Asian countries? I'll take maybe uh, two questions or three questions and let, and let them uh, wrap up right here in the middle front. Thank you. A question for Mr. Benson. I just want to know, um, for 
the purpose of winning hearts and minds of the, the typical American voters whose uh, dose of foreign news is mainly about Russia and the Middle East, how would you convince them that what's happening in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, is just as worthy of their attention as those that happen in the Middle East or other parts of the country? And then Jeff, as the last question up front. Thank you. Uh, this is a legal question. Um, we didn't talk about it today, including our panel, but um, China has constructed these drilling platforms in the East China Sea. Uh, and Japan and China had an agreement, I believe, in 2008, a joint agreement about uh, China setting these up on its side of the median line. Japan claims that China is constantly violating this. And so is there anything with that agreement or anything with international law that Japan could use as leverage to try to do something to, to force China to act differently? Good. Thank you, Jeffrey. Good question. Okay. Uh, the first question was, what can be done about ASEAN? The consensus-based, in 2016, Beijing learned how to use Cambodia. Um, uh, I was living in Phnom Penh that summer. The Cambodian government announced that they were being used um, to block consensus. Um, so with that kind of consensus-based organization like ASEAN, or for that matter, the EU or APEC or any number of multilateral organizations, what can be done? I understand that the South Asian countries have different situations and different relationship with China. So it is very difficult only for the Philippines to combat with China. Uh, currently, um, I have been asked quite frequently uh, to give advice to, for example, Vietnam, uh, how to combat with China. So, of course, ASEAN countries are suffering from the uh, a sort of uh, the high, ha very high hurdle uh, to uh, establish the code of conduct, to, uh, effective code of conduct to uh, make China comply international law. But uh, they need to continue uh, that effort. And also, uh, they can have cooperation from other regions, countries. For example, as I mentioned, uh, the United States and Japan and Australia and other countries have cooperated to keep the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. And EU countries, which do not have direct interest um, to a certain degree in the South China Sea, but uh, they have criticized Chinese the attitude toward the uh, arbitral tribunal's decision. So of course, uh, regional uh, cooperation is very important, but in addition to that, multilateral uh, cooperation is also expected. So by, again, I would like to repeat that the multilateral cooperation should be required uh, to make the situation better. That is the, uh, my uh, answer to the first question. And the third question is regarding the joint agreement uh, between China and Japan. Actually, in 2008, uh, Japan, uh, China and Japan uh, concluded an agreement on joint development of continental shelf. 
And, but unfortunately, that agreement was not a legal one. That was political agreements. So in that sense, each country cannot impose on others uh, the legal obligation uh, to conduct the joint development of continental shelf resources. And unfortunately, after that, uh, the Japan tried to uh, negotiate with China to improve the political agreement to legal agreement. But uh, thus far, to my, uh, at least to my understanding, uh, it was, has not been successful. So maybe the first step to take is to make the um, political joint agreement uh, to the uh, agreement, to the political uh, legal agreement. But I think it will take a uh, long time because uh, although um, in some sense uh, there is a stable situation between the two countries, but not the best situation. So maybe it will take uh, time uh, to make uh, the legal agreement for joint development of uh, the continental shelf resources. And also, of course, the best solution is the delimitation line is, agree uh, is agreed, but uh, it will take very much time, unfortunately. Thank you. Okay, I'll, uh, on the ASEAN uh, question, I, I really can't comment too much on that, just with the exception that uh, 2015, uh, we were part of the ADM plus uh, naval exercise. Um, and I hope we see this again where, you know, I sat down with, you know, the PLAN and the Russian in the same room, you know, talking about the maritime exercise. If we can kind of go down that path of more uh, international, uh, you know, cooperation at sea, uh, specifically from a search and rescue perspective, um, I think it would be really, really good uh, naval policy as well as uh, United States government policy. Although remember my comment at the very beginning, I do not represent the United States government. Um, the last is a, a tough question, I think. Um, how do you, and hopefully I'm paraphrasing it right, how do you win the hearts and minds of people here in the United States to gain attention to the East China Sea and South China Sea and what's going on? Uh, I think we've got to make it relevant today. Um, you know, my children are growing up in a very different era than I, than I am. Um, you know, my three-year-old runs in with this. Um, we've got to connect to the, um, the children of today that, uh, you know, that we've seen a shift in inter potential international art, the very beginnings of it, and what that means to them, and that the South China Sea and East China Sea maritime issues play front and center to that. I'm often reminded, um, uh, one Chinese once said to me that the uh, U.S. is the most developed country, and China is the most developing country. And at what point does, you know, China become the most developed, and, you know, where do we sit, I think is... Um, somewhere where we need to go, but hopefully, uh, I think, I hate to say, you know, iPhones, but the technology in today and, and trying to communicate in a way that uh, the youth today can understand the implications of what was at stake. Let me uh, conclude with a few top-line thoughts on the policy coordination implications, what we do about it. I think uh, Kanahara Sensei's point about international law is, is important. We, we need, that's our lodestar. That's our, we need to organize the international community around uh, principles of international law. Um, we're not getting a result from that right now in terms of Chinese behavior, but we are getting a result in terms of the behavior of states that care about international law. And I'm not convinced that China is such a revisionist country that it will throw out international law completely. I think it's a long-term strategy. Um, we have a war-fighting challenge, clearly. We have to, look, China's 
uh, strategy in the first island chain began uh, as an effort to complicate our planning for interventions uh, in, in Taiwan or in the East China Sea. We now have to complicate China's planning assumptions about their ability to execute war plans or coercion against our allies and friends. And that involves some new technologies, undersea warfare, where we have an asymmetrical advantage, um, finding ways to counter mass, which is a Chinese advantage with unmanned uh, underwater uh, and other uh, vehicles, and especially more jointness and interoperability with Japan uh, and among our friends and allies. I think part of our strategy is if China's aim in part is to weaken US alliances, our center of gravity, our response should be to strengthen that center of gravity. So even when something happens in uh, Second Thomas Shoals, our response should be geopolitical. It should be with Japan and Australia, with India, if we can, with Korea, with Europe. And every time we do it, it should be permanent. <laughs> you know, when we take these steps, it's not a temporary symbolic thing. It should be, um, you know, a permanent uh, staffing, a permanent uh, uh, joint uh, and combined command, whatever it is, um, to demonstrate um, the consequences geopolitically of coercion. Um, transparency and resilience in the Pacific Islands, in, in Southeast Asia at sea, we do that with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. Um, Jonathan Pryke does it at Lowy with his excellent websites on developments in the Pacific Islands. Transparency is generally our friend uh, in, in the open societies, and that includes support for civil society, uh, information, accountability, uh, things like the, I can never remember, I always think of the Blue Note Club, the Blue Dot, <laughs> so it's not a jazz bar, um, <laughs> the Blue Dot Network, it may be a small blue dot in the effort, but that kind of thing, transparency, accountability is our friend. And then uh, finally, and I'm glad Jeff ended with this, um, you know, in the end, our goal is peace and stability and um, prosperity and um, protecting our way of life, but it's not you know, making sure China has no successes. So um, uh, ADMM Plus has not really done much since 2015. That's just one example. These, in a little, in a way it's like international law. Uh, the reassurance piece, the confidence building piece is not gonna give us results soon, but it's a long-term effort. And there are consequences for not doing it, I think. Personally, I think it was a mistake to disinvite China from RIMPAC. I think it's unfortunate we haven't done um, ADMM Plus, which is the multilateral, uh, my view is we're gonna compete hard with China, we're gonna do it with our allies, we're gonna do everything I said, but we're, we, wanna, we don't wanna foreclose down the road uh, a cooperative uh, arrangement, maybe even a thousand ship Navy, you know, maybe we're all in this together. So it's been a rich discussion. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Nakayama-san and uh, Shikata-san and other friends and colleagues from JIA. Thanks, Nick St. Cheney and Hanna Fudal and others from CSIS. Please join me in thanking our last two panelists for a great discussion. Thank you.